I'm Brian Medore. The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, January the 27th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this Come On With It edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So it looks like a blustery day and evening ahead of us, so there's wind warnings for virtually all of the island. So we're going to see gusts in the 100, 110 kilometers an hour. So the folks out at the weather station, they suggest that, you know, some of those things that may be projectiles when grabbed and flicked around by the wind, like the shovels that we've got out by the door, maybe time to put those away today because no snow, wind, and rain. See, Dawson Mercer scored again last night. He's 11th on the season, 29th point, having a super solid year, and still, knock on wood, has never missed a game as an NHLer since he first stepped on the ice last season for the Devils. All right, one of the players that gets lost in the shuffle with, you know, the greats of a generation is Steve Eiserman. You know, playing behind or in the shadows, Gretzky and Lemieux and others, Eiserman was an absolute beauty. It was today in 1989 he became the fourth player in NHL history to record 100 points in 50 games or less. The great Stevie Y, 1989. Okay, curiosity and coincidence. So I woke up this morning to get into the office to open my email to read uh, an email from a fellow who said, why don't we ever talk about the Labrador Island link anymore? And that would be the tunnel, not the power link. Okay, so curiously enough, as going through it, and we can talk about it, absolutely. It's a lot more than simply building a tunnel. It's got to be all sorts of highway work done and what have you. Whether or not you think it's a good or bad, uh, good or bad idea, it is in the hands of the folks at Canada's Infrastructure Bank, so who knows. But curiously, it was 40 years ago today, 1983, that a pilot shaft for the Seiken Tunnel that spans the Japanese islands of Honshu and Hokkaido, completed when then-Prime Minister uh, Nakasone detonated a string of dynamite. It was the longest unders- undersea tunnel in the world upon completion. Now, when compared to the tunnel, which is some 53 kilometers, this one spans some 23 kilometers. So it's 330 feet below the seabed, 240 meters below sea level. So apparently this was really expedited when there was a typhoon that struck a car ferry and a huge disaster and tragic loss of life in 1954. And they proceeded to switch to go ahead and develop the Seikan Tunnel. All right. So if you want to talk about the link, we can do that. You know, one of the issues when we talk about the problems plaguing the healthcare system, whether it be for individuals, patients, wait times, and what have you, and of course the healthcare professionals. And I've long thought this because I remember distinctly one time when we would be talking about access to mental health care, and the warning came from a fellow working in the field that said, you know, we have to temper how we talk about it, even though we must talk about it, but we don't want to talk people out of getting help when referring to the fact that it's so difficult or unavailable in certain parts of the province, for instance. I think the same thing goes for those who are studying in some discipline or another to be a healthcare worker. And this story this morning is from nursing students. So they hear the stories, they get out on the floor and they see what's happening, and I would imagine it's fairly commonplace amongst the students to say to themselves, what am I getting into? And that's exactly the comments we're hearing from our lady named Brooke Sims, nursing representative on Munn's Student Union. She says, when we go onto a floor and see they're operating with half the staff and everyone is stressed and we hear about people leaving left and right, it's scary. So that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, when we talk about these types of things, we have to paint a clear picture. 
We know that government understands it. Whether or not you think they're doing enough about it is up to you, and we can talk about that. But when the picture is so bleak, of course people who are training to be part of the healthcare delivery system will be looking at it, hearing the stories, having conversations with those who have already graduated and working in the system and thinking, whoa, what are we doing? So, you know, not to say we have to change the channel or the tune or the conversation, but you know that's going to be part of the fallout because the students are hearing what we're talking about. So I thought that was interesting and not, not surprising. Then we're in the world of coincidence again. So a listener yesterday, Aaron, sent along a message saying, you know, why don't we do more to recruit men to become nurses? Because for ever and a day, nursing was quote-unquote women's work. And that's not true at all. And what we've seen, and this story this morning backs it up, is the seats occupied by men in nursing schools around the country for decades. You see about a 1% increase year over year. Now the reporting classes where there's some 20 to 40% of the nursing students are men. And so the story goes on to say that for the first time ever, there was an entire male nursing staff on 4 North B one day last week. So this woman who was in charge, Mona Malloy, She's the charge nurse. She says, since 1997, my 32 years, I've never had a complete all-male staff for an entire shift. So, obviously, that points to the fact that more men are joining the ranks of registered nurses. And it only makes sense. I would imagine all of you, including me, if I need the attention and the expertise of a registered nurse, I have no worries whatsoever if it's a man or a woman. You know, it's the professionalism. It's the training, which would be exactly the same across the board. So curiously, Aaron says, why aren't we doing more on that front? And he goes further to say, you know, we had real targeted campaigns, for instance, to encourage more women to join the trades. And it seems to have worked. So maybe a campaign to point to the fact nursing has a career for men might help fill some of those 600 vacancies as reported by Yvette Coffey and our friends at the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. So men at this moment in time account for approximately 9% of the nurses in Canada. Thus numbers from 2021 from the Canadian Institute for Health Information. So that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, there will continue to be some stigma associated with it. But I think that's going away quite quickly. We just need to see people in positions that we require. Whether they're men or women, I don't think anybody really cares. We just need the positions to be filled. So I think Aaron's on to something with a campaign uh, on exactly that front. And we did indeed make brief mention of it yesterday with some of the different measures that governments have employed to try to recruit healthcare professionals. Now a few numbers coming back on what was the Come Home Year initiatives. Now people scoffed at Come Home Year when it was all about tourism, even though I think it helped. It was a good tourism season, not a full rebound, but certainly a big number uptick from the season prior. So because of this home care incentive, and here's what it was uh, aimed at, healthcare workers who were born and raised in this province but left. And for those who were trained, performed the residency, educated or practiced for longer than a year in Newfoundland and Labrador, they were eligible to get some of the bonuses that were offered to lure them to Newfoundland and Labrador. So they've made offers of some $2.2 million. There's another $1 million in offers that are out there. And the end result was 30-plus healthcare workers did indeed take the government up on their offer and made their way here. So I guess in some form that's a success. But, you know, again, how we deem something to be good or bad, successful or not, I'm not sure why we haven't gone down the road or taken on the exercise of determining exactly how many we need in whatever profession. From radiation therapists 
because we've seen one of the units close and patients diverted potentially to Toronto. So whether it be in that discipline or nurse practitioners or, yes, family doctors or registered nurses. So when we have the recruitment efforts around the world, notably in Ireland and India, are they working? Are we hitting the targets we've established? Well, we don't know because I don't think there is a target. But the Come Home Year effort seems to have been some form of success anyway. And Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne, positive or optimistic about what the outcome of the meetings between his counterparts across the country and with the Prime Minister. There looks like there's going to be some announcement of some type of deal on the 7th of February. Now, there's no real details to understand. Most of it has been about the percentage that the federal government pays for health care in one province, territory, or another, and an increase therein. There was always conversations about stipulations or conditions attached to the money, but Minister Osborne says that he's optimistic. Now, as Tim Powers goes on to point out, there will be lots of positive noises about solutions, but we won't really know what a dollar figure might look like and an increase in health care transfer dollars until the budget in March. And that only makes sense to me, but the minister responsible is optimistic. Okay, moving on. So the story that was told yesterday about the retreat for representatives at Memorial University, representatives from a university in Norway, and the Shorefast Foundation, one day in town, three days at the Fogo Island Inn. The most lavish destination, maybe in the country, but certainly in the province. So there's all sorts of consternation about the money that they spent on that retreat. You know, Rob Greenwood from the university and the Harris Center saying that because the Shorefast Foundation, Zita Cobb and her friends, were the founding organization behind this group, that the decision was eventually made to go ahead and go to Fogo Island, the inn. And he says there were some breaks given for rack rate for the rooms and what have you, but it is not sitting well, and optically it is not good. It simply isn't. And Memorial University's uh, faculty association, who are poised to potentially strike on Monday, they're not pleased with anything <laughs> to do with university management or administration at this moment in time. Here's a tweet from the faculty association that I think came out uh, yesterday afternoon. And this is about the potential for job action. Memorial's decision to give students tips for crossing a picket line. They sent out an email to the students to give them tips for how to safely cross a picket line. So they go on to say, instead of canceling all classes in the event of a strike is bad enough, it creates even more uncertainty for students and workers. On top of that, to copy your homework, question mark, question mark. So it looks like the tips to cross a picket line were taken word for word from Loyalist College and sent out to the Mon students. And it goes through the obvious ones. Respect the picketer's right, slow down, both walking and driving, allow extra time, don't jeopardize your personal health and safety, avoid confrontation, don't react, argue, become provoked, recognizing stress levels are high for everyone. But, you know, when all of these things are right in front of us, obviously this wasn't going to play very well. Whether it be with the students' union and their fight for controlling of tuition fee, tuition and fees, and of course we all know the uh, stories surrounding tuition, but that one is simply falling, I think I heard Brian Medora say, falling like a stone or being received like that. Anyway, let's keep going. Da -da -da, where's that story here? So we're seeing reports, you know, and we can get into some of the numbers coming from the Crown Prosecutor's Office, but this one is, is interesting and it's awful. So there's a bunch of specialty stores in St. Johnson area, and the owners feel like they have been absolutely targeted. So Outfitters, which is a great shop down on Water Street, they had their second break-in in a few weeks. They're targeting some high-end stuff like the Canada Goose Jackets, right, which sell for over $1,000. 
or you know, high-end parkas, uh, whatever the case may be. And they know exactly what they're doing. They know where the inventory is. They're in and out in a minute. And so that's happened to them a couple of times in the last few weeks. Then you go to talk about the uh, folks behind the Alpine Country Lodge in Churchill Square, another great shop. They've been in business for over thir- almost 30 years, pardon me. And until December, they had not been broken into for 21 years. That has changed, and it has changed dramatically. Let's see. Uh, how many times have they been broken into here? They had been broken into back-to-back nights, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and that's only the half of it. They have been busted into repeatedly. Imagine, go 21 years without being broken into once, and now it's happening night overnight. And the owner, one of the owners says, you know, I go to bed wondering, is it tonight, another night we're going to get a call at 3 a.m.? That the store has been pilfered one more time or pillaged. So anyway, and on the Crown Prosecutor story regarding the uptick in gun crime, violent crime, you know, I knew full well it wouldn't be well received to talk about it uh, because people think that you're trying to scare folks, which I am not interested in scaring anybody. But the data is what the data is. Stats Canada says that there's been a 20% increase from 2020 to 2021 in violent crime severity index. And there's just some caseloads to uh, give additional context. There were 5,012 outstanding criminal files in the eastern region of the province. Compared to the same time in February 2020, there were 3,943 such files. They're actually dealing with prosecuting 12 charges of murder or manslaughter across the province. That does not include appeals. So they obviously have their hands full. And so then I guess to further yesterday's conversation around it, you know, we can talk about investment in police and police presence and the numbers of people working for the RNC or the RCMP. But I think that's only one, and I would suggest, small part of trying to deal with and address how and why people find themselves in that life circumstance. There's always going to be crime. It's unfortunate to say it out loud, but it's the fact of the matter. But whether we don't, if we don't spend money and targeted money on poverty-related issues, drug-related issues, drug treatment uh, and addiction facilities, and address the wait times and all of those types of things. And then, of course, yes, add in mental health, not to suggest that a mental illness means that you're a criminal. Of course, that's not true, nowhere close to true. But until we take it on from that angle, I think we're just going to be swimming upstream. And there was an arrest made yesterday. The fellow who they think is responsible for three purposely set fires, three cases of arson, he's set over for a 24-hour uh, mental evaluation, but that arrest has been made. Let's move on to food. You know I like to talk about food. One look at me tells you that. Okay. Apparently this gentleman was on the morning show a couple of days ago, but I'd really like to speak with Mackenzie Warford. He's the president of Papa's Farm in Southbrook, and he's also very recently helped co-found the Canadian Hydroponic Association. So we can grow things year-round, inside and outside, using hydroponics. And of course, all you need is artificial lighting and water-soluble fertilizer as opposed to the more traditional approach. So he says any vegetable, any plant, any fruit can be grown right here. He says it's done great inside and can be even done outside with great results. How that works, I'm not sure, which is why I'd like to speak with him about it. So he says there's, it makes no sense to import produce when it can be grown year-round hydroponically. The requirement, in his opinion, and I'll hopefully he can bolster that this morning if he has time, is that... There was no representative body for folks who were involved in hydroponics in the uh, country, so that meant a lack of support, a lack of materials, when in fact if you look at the United States of America, and I know, I mean, economies of scale have to be factored in here, they have a hydroponic hydroponic industry, pardon me, that generates over $9 billion in revenue annually. 
So while we know we have a food security issue and an insecurity issue, you know, yes, traditional farming, 100%, but more and more attention to what makes it even easier for, insofar as year-round operations go. It'd be great to talk with anybody in the hydroponic business because it used to be hydroponics was only associated with growing weed. Now, of course, it's much more and accessible, and if we have a better understanding, and now a supportive organization, an umbrella organization like the Canadian Hydroponic Association with a co-founder right here, maybe that leads to more and more opportunities. All right, and I hate to do it, but boy, oh boy, the prices of everything is driving me up the wall. But overnight, the PUB, these increases are absolute madness. Diesel overnight increased by 35.2 cents in one fell swoop. Furnace oil up just over 30 cents across the province. Where does it end? I mean, those numbers. When we see the two, three, four, five swings upwards, downwards, I think most of us, you know, anticipate there's going to be some fluctuation in the prices. But 35 plus cents on diesel, 30 plus cents on furnace oil. I mean, unbelievable. And someone who uh, via email suggests we put this one out there again. Is every little bit helps, right? So whether it be the one five cent charge or the second five cent charge associated with fuels that are still being paid. You know, for the importation and distribution, because Combot Chance is no longer doing any of that work. They're in the biofuel business at Brea. But when did they go away? Whether it be uh, five cents flowing to Silver Peak or to Irvings or whoever, you know, it must be nice to have a business model that I help pay for. You know, it's fine. I'm going to have to pay for the end product. We all understand there's going to be importation costs and what have you. But when does that, those couple of five cents go away? Because as I said, Every bit helps. All right. How are we doing on the phone there, David? Very quickly. So Energy NL, formerly NOIA, generally referred to as the province's oil and gas industry organization. They've now launched a new campaign, Wind at Our Backs, talking about the benefits, the upside of wind development and hydrogen development. I guess reading the tea leaves, looking at where industry is going, but also interesting that they've launched that particular campaign. And if you want to talk about Beta Nord and the build right here or anything else under the sun, you can do it after we come back from the break. First, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, Pat's there and Roger's also there. We're talking about military medals and the Labrador Link. Fantastic. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number two. Roger, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Thank you for taking me call and listening to me. Uh, Happy to do it. Uh, meanwhile, now the subject with Labrador Link. Well, I'd like to know your opinion why you should put one there. Well, I haven't suggested that they should or shouldn't. I don't even know how it would work, to be honest. That's where some of the lack of detail makes it almost impossible to know whether or not it's a good idea. For instance, who builds it, what a tariff or a passage fee might look like, You know, whether or not the road work can be done on the, on the Quebec side, highway upgrades in the Great Northern Peninsula. So I don't really know, to be honest with you, Roger. What do you think? Uh, my opinion, they start, we're planning one back in the 60s there to go across. Yeah. The Labrador Link, they did get plans for it, and they were going to do it. Do you remember that, or do you, I don't know, or you know about what I'm saying there? I know that there's been long plans to potentially do it, uh, and that's been kicked around and bandied about for a long time. There's been some feasibility studies done. I don't think we've gone to the marketplace, to the companies that have been building undersea tunnels, whether it be in Norway or anyone else, to talk about 
construction costs and then whether or not it mimics the confederation bridge where there's you know for instance a private sector built it and simply charges a toll so we don't know how people uh, propose it would work so that makes it really difficult to suggest that it's good or bad or indifferent i don't know uh but you look at it you're going across to labrador newfoundland up on the peninsula there yeah, lots of times you can't get across with hoist or wind. And uh, you got goods coming through there and go out there a bit, or you're going out that way. But if you did have a tunnel through there, I think if you had a tunnel through there, you got more traffic going through Labrador, if you want that coming down through uh, Walbush, Labrador, or from Fermont, that area going through, you will have to put more businesses there you would have to turn around and uh, increase money coming into Newfoundland and Labrador, and uh, you will not cause any problems for people trying to get through the other side. For hoisting that won't be there. And as far as I'm concerned, they should have done a study on this a long, long time ago. Well, I think they need to do one on them and get uh, a tunnel through there. I think they got to go to the market and see who's interested in partnering or building it and how that would look. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff has to be done. You know, would there be the traffic uptick that some people suggest there would be? I don't know. It's a long way out of the way, and I think you make a good point that there would have to be amenities along the stretch of highway. There'd have to be the completion of uh, Route 130, and that's under the control of the province of Quebec. Then if there is that big uptick in traffic, everyone on the Great Northern Peninsula would tell you, well, there would have to be an expansion of the highway network to accommodate it. So there's lots of moving parts here that I don't think we've totally figured out. Well, I know there's a lot of moving parts there, but uh, that's like uh, there's a lot of sick people here, but we got to get the doctors doing some moving parts. you got to start figuring out things and try to put it there for sure. our grandkids. I'll never see it. Um, I don't know if my grandkids would there, but if it do, we'll make this uh, Newfoundland and Labrador a lot better and richer, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we've even done, I think there's been suggestions that more and more people would take the opportunity to visit the province, for instance, because they wouldn't have to rely on the potentially unreliable service of Marine Atlantic, you know, based on weather or mechanical issues or what have you. And, you know, they wouldn't have to worry about rental cars and all those things. I've heard those arguments. Whether or not people would take the time, for instance, to drive from Quebec or Ontario, you know, the uh, the south of Quebec or from Ontario or wherever to take that route, I don't know. I mean, would it be attractive? Possibly. Certainly there might be some attraction just to make their t- way to Labrador, for instance, for the very first time. So, and, you know, people will use the Confederation Bridge. That's the one project they point to and the similarity. Okay, so if the private sector built it, and at no cost to me, simply I'll have to pay if I want to travel across the bridge, But, of course, the proximity to millions of people to PEI and the Confederation Bridge is vastly different than it would be to come across from Labrador to the tip of the Great Northern Peninsula. But I think it's an interesting conversation. Uh, Meanwhile, now, we got to pay to go across on the ferry. So when you go on the bridge, do the same. uh, If you had a tunnel, do the same thing. Uh, You've got to pay to go through the tunnel. At least you can drop the prices to a certain level that you can do it. And... uh, you still got good crossings, and uh, through the years, that tunnel will pay for itself, and everything else will by charge them going through it. And I think you will get enough traffic if you uh, add it on. I think you will for people going through tours, plus uh, more good ship through that way, because you'll not have to wait over Port of Bass for the ferry. I think you would. 
Yeah, and what the cost of traveling via ferry versus what it might cost to travel in the tunnel. And I don't think the ferry goes away in full because there might be some hazardous goods that are only able to travel on the ferry. But, of course, these are questions that we haven't heard answered enough anyway at this moment in time. But I appreciate you chiming in on it this morning. Roger, anything else you want to say? No, sir. Thank you very much. And uh, we miss you when you're up that week there taking a vacation or whatever you're doing. But you take care and keep up the good work. Thanks a lot, Roger. Stay in touch. Right on. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go. We're having an exchange in emails with this fella. It's quite an interesting topic. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Pat. You're on the air. Mr. Patty Daly, it's so nice to meet you. Uh, Happy to have you on the show, Pat, and thanks for the emails. And you know what I'm going to talk about. Uh, Here's how it operates. I'm an old lady. I'm age 76. I've got a one-minute read-off here to introduce you and the listeners of what our conversation is going to be about. Will you allow me to read it off? Go ahead. First of all, today... I'd like to offer my sincere sympathy to your National Silver Cross mother, Mrs. Alice Murphy of Conception Harbor, Newfoundland. Her son, Corporal Jamie Murphy, 19 years ago on this day, was killed in action in Afghanistan. So I want her to know, and if she's listening, that my thoughts and prayers are with her. Second, Patty, I hope that you get my emails that you already know what the call is about. I'm trying to make contact with the Silver Cross mothers anywhere across Canada, to get their point of view on the buying and selling of the Memorial Cross medals on eBay, which in my eyes has to be one of the most disgusting events allowed to happen. And as you also know, I reached out to my own MP here in Ontario to see if he will work with me to try and put a stop to this. Luckily, my MP, Alex Rupp, is a retired colonel of the Canadian military, so at least he has a better understanding as to my reason for doing so. If the Americans can create a Congress bill to protect six of their military medals from either that of sale or barter, then why can't our Canadian government not have the common decency to protect at least two of our medals? Those two being the Victory Cross and the Silver Cross medals or the Memorial Cross medals of which no amount of money should ever be attached. As it stands today, our government protects none of them. Selling that Memorial Cross medal not only cheapens the reason of it being gifted, but it's a total insult to the mother or widow who is left holding it. In other words, you have just stuck a dollar sign on a Canadian fallen soldier's grave. So my idea is stop selling it. End of story. That's the line that uh, jumped off the email that you just read, is that you've just stuck a dollar sign on a dead soldier's grave, and you're absolutely right. Six of the most prestigious, I'll call them, American uh, service uh, men and women medals, they are not allowed to be sold or bartered. I know that to be true. And I was actually surprised, and I did not know, that you were able to sell the Memorial Cross or the, what's the other one, I'm sorry? It just jumped out of my mind. The Victory Cross the Victory is the Cross. big one. That's when, that was worth about a half a million. Wow. Now, you can get the victory, or you can get the Memorial Cross, which is a fallen soldier, uh, for about 300 or not, depending on who it was. You just open up eBay and have a look, and you'll see all kinds of them on there for sale. There's a nice batch of them down in, uh, down in Toronto. This is what, see, what got me on this, Patty, it didn't really start with the, with the medal itself. My dad was a Canadian artist, not known, well-known at all. He did a painting back in 1956 in memory of the Silver Cross mothers. And the, the painting is called The Widow, and it's got the Silver Cross medal in the portrait on the, on the model that's in it. 
So that's where it started out. The painting's 67 years old. I'm getting old. There's no family members left, and i got to find a home for this painting. My dad would never think of selling it because of who he painted it for. You don't put a dollar on a dead soldier's grave. And he painted it in memory of the of the widows and the mothers that wear the Silver Cross medal. That's a completely different story. I know in the long run I can get a home for that painting. But it, it, this is what got me into the Silver Cross medals. And I started to, I thought, I can't believe this. You're not selling that thing. It's a, it's a memorial award. It's an honor medal. You don't, the, the military are service medals. That I can see to a point. I don't like it. But the thing is, I mean, they're wheeling dealing like they're hockey cards. But that memorial cross, no, no, no. You take that one right off the board. Have you had any luck with your conversations with uh, uh, your member of Parliament, Ruff? Do you think that this would be something close to his heart? Well, you got one down Parliament? your way in 2011, uh, Patty. Uh, Peter Stopper over in no- uh, Nova Scotia put a private members through bill in 2011. This is why I'm, I'm doing all this research back on this. It didn't go through. Uh, the, the, now, I sent you the letter I got from my MP here in, uh, in, in Grey Bruce area where I live. And he said uh, he's got a chance at it. But they don't like to ruffle the feathers. I've even, I can even forward a letter to you that I got from the Canadian uh, Legion that uh, they were interested to a point. But once I brought up the medals, they backed off. It's a, it's a Pandora's box. They don't want to get into it because people are making too much money on the bloody things. Whose who's, uh, feathers would be ruffled? Simply the folks who are selling them on eBay, for instance? It's just a dirty topic. You don't want it brought up, as far as I'm concerned. It's curious. I mean, you like, would think... I, I sent you the one. I sent you the one. Uh, the one fellow that I've met, uh, basically on email or through a guy by the name of Dave Thompson, out of Saint George, Ontario. He protects them. What he does is shop for them, finds the Silver Cross medals. He was buying them out of his own pocket. Now he's more or less contacting the family or a church or a legion and trying to get them, when they're bid on eBay, he'll get them, and then uh, he'll hand them back to the organization. It's like the dog chasing its tail. I mean, stop selling the bloody things. They shouldn't be sold. They're, they're a memorial thing for the mother and widow of that dead soldier. Beyond your father's artistry and capturing the medal, uh, mm-hmm. what else drives you to chase this and to champion it, Pat? Say what? Run so that w- button. Why, why are you championing this cause? Is it simply something that struck you as it irritates unfair? The hell out of me. Okay, it, listen, it I get it. It irritates the hell out of me. I'm okay. an old lady, and, and I just can't believe that that's how that, that piece of silver, that, or the, that metal is treated. It belongs to the mother or the widow or the family. But what they've screwed it around, Patty, because in 2001, between it came out in 1919, from 1919 till about the 1950s, it was one medal for the widow or the mother or the family, like the recipient. In about the night after that, in 2001, they decided now they're handing three of them out within the family. Well, that's all kinds of hardware then to end up and sell and get lost. Do you have anyone else fighting this good fight with you, Pat? 
No, I think I'm on my own up here in Ontario, but that's why I've reached out to you because you've got one of the best talk shows in Canada. <laughs> I appreciate that. And you know, you got, you got my contact. I don't really want to put that on air, uh, but if somebody wants to reach me, I would like to have a, a talk. I have reached one national uh, Silver Cross mother, and that was a woman in Brampton by the name of Deanna Abel. She was a 2000 national mother that laid the wreath in Ottawa. And she's behind me 100%. So I'm reaching out. I, I, I would like, not today, but I would like to have a little chat with Mrs. Alice Murphy about her son and what she thinks about it. It's the mothers that have the medal that, to me, should be in an uproar about this. Stop selling them. It's an insult to them. I wonder how people get their hands on them. If, you know, if it was given to the mother, in this case, Mrs. Murphy, I wonder how that may indeed fall into the hands of someone who sells it. Now, I, I don't know, uh, I don't have any contact for Alice Murphy, but I do know some people who are veterans here in this province that might be interested in the campaign that you've organized here. Uh, I can pass your contact information along to them privately, quietly, yeah. and, and maybe they'll reach out to you, Pat. But I hadn't really given this particular issue any thought, but I'm glad you called on it this morning because now I will give it some consideration and pass your contact around to see what we can do to get a bit more of a groundswell to help you out. And down the line, I'll keep you informed of what takes place here. Yeah, please and do. And I do thank you, Pat, and God love you for that show. It's one of the best, It's about the best one I know in Canada. So That's very kind of you to say. God love and the Newfoundlanders. Yeah, who, everybody loves the Newfoundlanders. Greetings uh, from Ontario, and I thank you very much, Patty. Thank you. Stay in touch. Let me know what happens. I will. Thanks, Pat. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. That's an interesting one. You know, like she rightfully points out, in the United States, their six most valued or prestigious or treasured medals, you can't do anything with them. You can't pawn them, you can't sell them, you can't uh, barter them. But our two big ones, you can. And so I kind of like where Pat's going on that one. You want to talk about it, you can do it right after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Bill, you're on the air. Morning, Bill. Hi there. Okay. Uh, Patty, uh, good morning to you, first of all, and uh, I am so glad this morning that it's mild out, because with the uh, increase in uh, diesel and so on and so forth this morning, uh, we need to continue to have a mild winter. Uh, My rant this morning, Patty, is uh, the price of diesel, of course, and the uh, oil and whatnot has gone up. It's like a yo-yo, and uh, what I want to bring to light is the Irving tanks down on the Southside Hills, and I'll just guess there's six or eight of them up there. I'm guessing that they don't be refilled until probably every three months. And having said that, there should be a three-month supply minimum. And if there is, why is the prices fluctuating almost on a daily basis the way they are? Based on if they've been filled up only once in three months, for example, the price that was paid back whenever they bought that oil, should be the price that stays until they're basically retopped up again. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're being bamboozled. I think CBC or NTV should do a story on the refills by the ships uh, the Ir- to the Irving tanks, uh, like an access to information ATIP inquiry on behalf of the people. And uh, whoever is the PUB manager... Where or who are they? And get out and talk to the public on the news so that we can identify them as a person so that they can defend what they're doing to the people of Newfoundland. You know, 
minister responsible for the PUB, Cyrus Totally, said some while back that we're going to have the PUB with a more transparent process here. Now, currently, we still get the same old news releases pointing to the same old market uh the market issues or the commodity fluctuations, but I don't know any more about it. But I suppose even if we had a weekly press conference with the PUB and they simply said, well, here's what's happening. It doesn't make it feel any better to push the pull the trigger on the pump and it doesn't make the cake taste any better. But an overnight adjustment of 35 plus cents on diesel, it's really difficult to understand how that makes any sense in the world. I don't know if we use a different formula here or whatever the case may be because we see different spikes and reductions that are vastly different than the rest of Atlantic Canada. It's hard to compare us to maybe British Columbia or something, but certainly we're not that far off the beaten track to have a a pretty detailed comparison to, say, for instance, just Nova Scotia. But I don't get it, and I don't know where it ends, but that's crazy numbers overnight. And furnace oil, 30 cents plus up overnight. Oh, boy, I don't know how people are going to... uh, how they're going to do it this winter. Then you look up the North Coast, you talk about their stove oil, 500 bucks a drum, lasts about two weeks. Yeah. Well, my uh, my quick thinking this morning is because we're having a mild winter, I guess a sack it to the taxpayers doing this this morning to us so that uh, they can get more taxes because uh, we're not burning as mo- enough oil for them. I don't know how much influence, uh, whether it be government or business, has on the adjustment of the price. I really don't know. I don't know if anybody knows. But all I do know is I got my oil tank filled up there a few days ago, so I'm glad I spared myself that extra 20 cents. But for those people out there who are anticipating the oil truck to pull up in front of their home today or tomorrow or on Monday, they've got a huge bill coming in the mailbox or in their email, whatever the case may be. Yeah, absolutely. And right now this morning, um, I'm lucky enough I'm retired but I tell you what, if I was an independent trucker this morning facing this, I would be taking my truck, parking it somewhere on a heavy traffic road in this city, and I'd paralyze the city. I'd gather up a bunch of fellas that would uh, go with me, and I would paralyze this city by leaving our trucks right on Kenmount Road, Prince Philip Drive, wherever. But why Why do you think that's a good idea to hurt me and you and what's that going to do for anybody at the PUB? Because, Patty, they're bamboozling us. They're doing what they darn well like with regards to Jack. It's like a yo-yo. The prices are up and down like a yo-yo. And like I said at the beginning of my call, those Irving tanks up on the south side hills probably got three-month-old product in them based on prices back then. And here they are, jacking up and down the prices whenever they feel like it, based on old inventory. Yes, well, same thing for gasoline in the tanks at the gas station. They've got a huge problem with all this, too. Yeah, absolutely. But this I'm saying it's smoke and mirrors. It's all smoke and mirrors. And our provincial government are not stepping in. Premier Fury is not doing nothing about it, in my opinion, because it's tax revenue. It's a money grab. Okay, the only thing I would say to that is that I don't want politicians involved in setting the price. I, I think that would be the worst-case scenario. Just imagine what the kind of levers they could pull when they need the public to be distracted from one thing or another or whether it's campaign time, and all of a sudden, the politicians sitting in the seat of the government have control of the price of fuel. I well, mean, who, well, who is the PUB? 
Well, it's, it's a, just not an olive branch or an extension of the government. Well, it is a quasi-independent body, but my point yeah. is that... But, I mean, yeah, I mean, come on. Now, Bill, you and I, be you realistic, and I know Bill. The to that. You and I know the difference Bill, to that. be realistic. That's smoke and mirrors. Bill, be realistic. Nobody wants the politician setting the price of fuel. Nobody. Well, then why don't somebody from the PUB get on MTV News, CBC News, so we can or maybe look on at the show. actual person and listen to what they have to say to defend themselves? Happy to do it. Absolutely. Would love to have someone on from the PUB. That's right. That's right. They're not being done. They're not doing it because they're being silenced. Well, they won't make themselves available. I don't know no. why. I'd certainly like to speak with someone, Bill. Right. But your frustration is shared by everybody. I mean, it's Absolutely. just becoming unmanageable to fill up my furnace tank and or the tank in my rig. So I get where you're coming from, and I completely understand the frustration, and I hear lots of it. Yeah, well, again, I'll finish my story or okay. my rant with you this morning by saying I think the CBC local news, NTV local news, right. should do an access to information regarding the ships that brings that oil and gasoline and diesel in to the White Hills, or sorry, Southside Hills, and see how often it comes in and how often it's refilled. And that way, then, we as a consumer can have a, an idea as to how old the inventory do be and what the price is probably that uh, that should be charged as opposed to the yo-yo pricing that's going on. Yeah, and that would be information coming from the companies, not from the government, but I'd like to know that too because it does play a role in how we evaluate any decision made at the PUB. Good to have you on, Bill. Appreciate the time. All right, my friend. Thank you for listening. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. I said this gentleman's name off the top of the program, Mackenzie Warford. He's the president out of Papa's Farm in Southbrook. He's one of the co-founders or the driving force behind the Canadian Hydroponic Association, newly formed. Mackenzie Warford, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to Mackenzie Warford, who's the president of Papa's Farm in Southbrook and recently helped co-found the Canadian Hydroponic Association. Good morning, Mackenzie. You're on the air. Good morning, Mackenzie. I'm sorry, the connection is terrible. I can't hear you. Dave, can we try to reconnect maybe with Mackenzie Warford? I can't hear what he's saying. Okay, so we're just going to try to figure out where Mackenzie is. But, you know, there's always going to be emotional reaction to things like price of diesel and price of fertilizer. And, of course, there is. That's why we talk about it. And so... I'm not sure exactly what the point the emailer made during the break that why why do I think the PUB is the right place to make decisions uh, about the price of fuels? The comment was is that I think the worst case scenario possible would be for politicians to be directly making the determination of what anything costs. I mean, can you just imagine the political abuse that would be possible? So here comes campaign time all of a time. All of a sudden there's big drops. And, you know, whether it be a political scandal, one thing or another, and a way to change the political channel is for them to noodle around with the price of fuels. I just don't think it's in our best interest. But if anyway, if you disagree with that, that's fine. Give us a shout. Now let's see if we can join Mackenzie Warford, the president of Papa's Farm in Southbrook, on two. Mackenzie, you're on the air. Hello. How are you doing, Patty? Doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. I'd like to send a special shout-out to all my members and well as well as my daughters who are listening. Terrific, and I hope they're all having a great day. I'm keenly interested in food security, insecurity issues, traditional farming, backyard farming, homesteading, and, yes, hydroponics. 
Why was there a need to establish a formal association representing Canadian hydroponic farmers? Well, right now we need to take this opportunity to recognize the size of the Americans' hydroponic industry. Um, you know, we do a lot of piggy banking off of them, and right now they generate about $9 billion annually in revenue in hydroponics, and Canada has nothing to show for it. So what do we get? You know, an umbrella organization usually would be the go-to for information or guidance as a startup or whatever the case may be. So what role specifically will your association play? Well, particularly right now with our members on board, we have over about 60 years of hydroponic experience in the field and uh, educated in university and stuff like that. So the education factor is immaculate. We have the ability to take in new members and, be, and give them the information they need to be able to provide year-round produce to whatever community they live in. So uh, we see hydroponics as the way of the future. Uh, it's the fastest-growing innovation in farming history. And in regards to food security, you know, it can be achieved uh, through the form of uh, sustainable farming. And uh, in order for people to, farmers and hydroponic farmers, to sustain themselves, the infrastructure from the government has to be there, right? And we don't have that infrastructure right now to make this type of farming sustainable. But if the government stepped in and helped us out with programs, uh, we'd be able to get on a better uh, straight and narrow. I think many, even if you haven't been a farmer, people would understand or have a better understanding of what it takes to be a traditional farmer, hands in the dirt. What don't? What do you think people don't know about hydroponics that hasn't generated more conversation? You know, whether it be startup costs, the type of equipment, the type of training a farmer in hydroponics would need. What do you give us an idea how it works compared to the more traditional approach of farming that we're all more familiar with? Well, as you as you just said, you know, all that information uh, is accessible to traditional to, to traditional farmers and stuff. But when it comes to hydroponic farming. There's nowhere for Canadians to turn to to get this information. There's no teaching that uh, I'm aware of right now that's specifically uh, revolving around hydroponics and, and sustainability. You know, it's more traditional. We need we need to get on this innovation train and uh, really beef up our numbers because you know, like I said, it can be grown. It can be done year round, and it's been proven it can be done year round. So we need to come up with the programs that are available to teach this type of farming. This is very different, it's new, it's innovative, um, and we need to mitigate barriers. You know, we need to really expose hydroponics for what it is and the potential it has to benefit the entire uh, country. When we talk about some of the worries farmers had, and more traditional farmers, uh, that had this year going into with input costs that have risen for food and feed and fertilizer, Give us an idea what operating costs look like inside of hydroponics, because I know there's a, there, there's different components to hydroponics versus what we do with outdoor uh, irrigation systems, what have you. So, would hydroponic farmers have shared that same worry with those spike in input costs? Well, that's the beautiful thing about hydroponics. Um, it's actually more feasible than your traditional farming, from what people would think it might be more expensive. But when it comes to stuff like fertilizer. Uh, a hydroponic system recycles its fertilizer. So you end up uh, using one batch of fertilizer uh, for extended period of time. And then when the fertilizer is done, you can actually use that on your field, on your root vegetables, because it's the same fertilizer you use on root vegetables. But because it's in a large body of water, the water can become a little stagnant over a, a long period of time, right? 
So uh, the other benefactor is the amount of produce that you can put in a small area with a hydroponic system is unanimous. Um, you're going to have to use big, heavy equipment when you're doing field vegetables and stuff like that to get out there. And like you said, the irrigation system and all this equipment, when when you use a hydroponic system and a vertical system in uh, specifically, you can put 80 plants in a two-by-two-foot section, right? So you don't need a lot of space to grow hydroponically. You can do it indoors, and you can do it uh, all year round. And, you know, like I said, uh, the cost associated with it is relatively cheap, especially when you consider the fact that you can take that produce as a farmer in a hydroponic uh, field and sell it directly to the consumer, and you get the money back in your in your pocket, and then you can use that to, to uh, you know, contribute to your community. The money's not being given to Sobeys or uh, big chain uh, distributors or whatever. Uh, that's why we like to try and keep the, the scale down to the farmer's size, so the farmer's markets and stuff like that, so the farmers can make the money uh, and reinvest it in their operations, reinvest it in their uh, community, and, you know, reinvest it in Canada, not invest it somewhere else. We've got the cheapest form of farming, the fastest form of farming, and it generates a lot of revenue for our specific needs, for our country, not for somebody else's country. Mackenzie, give us some idea of the scale of Papa's Farm and what are you growing? So as of right now, I'm operating a one 100 by 24 foot hydroponic greenhouse. It's set up on geothermal as well that I custom built. Uh, everything I built is custom built. Uh, I've done it all from scratch. There was nowhere to go to get the help or information I needed. Everything had to be done from scratch. So right now, we got a variety of lettuces from romaine, iceberg to loose leaf. I can grow any herb that you want grown, and I can and I can basically grow any vegetable that you want grown as well. Uh, we just got into doing a little bit of root vegetables last year, and right now, I mean, we got turnip greens, beet tops, mustard greens, uh, Swiss chard, kale. The list goes on, and you know, I, and there's no limit to hydroponics. We can grow anything. So this is the problem, really. Right now, I'm, I'm met with uh, a demand issue, and I cannot boost the supply, and I need the appropriate uh, funding and support and for the government to recognize, you know, what I got going on and the fact that uh, when the ferries stop running, I keep producing. And when yeah. the shelves are empty and the trucks can't get across from North Sydney, I keep producing. And I've got people begging me for produce. I've got restaurant owners begging me for produce, quite literally. And I can't produce enough on my own. And I looked to government for help. And I got a lot of, you know, I, I'm not criticizing government. I know there's a big, there's big issues in the world. But there is a big issue with food security. And, and Canadians deserve to eat Canadian produce. So when I am here and I see Canadians crying out for our produce, and I know I can do more and make more, and this is feasible, you know, something's got to give. So this is why the association was formed, because it's not only me in Newfoundland that's doing this and producing a vast amount of produce and not getting, you know, the demand or the supply because I can't meet the demand. Uh, there's people all across Canada. We've got eight growers and we all can't meet the demand. And people, Canadians, are begging for our produce. And so, you know. Yeah. Mackenzie, what keeps you from scaling up to meet the demand? Excuse me. Sorry, Patty. What keeps you from scaling up to meet the demand? 
Well, as of right now, um, it's the uh, the funding that's involved around hydroponics is very investors see it to be risky. We both know Sprung, right? You know Sprung specifically, right? Yep. So that investment to government right now uh, on a provincial scale is risky. Uh, myself, I've got a year and a half in business, and I want to scale up to the point where I can provide for my whole district of Green Bay and further on. I'm also trying to move into Grand Falls, Windsor, and I have talks with the community. So um, I can't do that all on my own. You know what I'm saying? Uh, my business is thriving, and I've shown that my business is thriving, so I need the additional support of the government, in my opinion, for my personal business. To get it to the next level, to, you know, so like I look at the um, the fish farms. When they started out, they were a single fish, a single, you know, net, uh, you know, they had their amount of fish. When the government realized the potential and the food sustainability, they got on board, correct? Yep. So we are at that moment, that pinnacle in time where the government, if the government can get involved and make this a little easier for hydroponic growers to get access to the programs that are available because there are some programs available to hydroponic growers. There are not a lot, and there's no specific uh, hydroponic programs out there to meet criteria that we would like met. So in order to get us to that next plateau, that point where we can feed all Canadians Canadian produce, the government has to step in and say, look, here, here's, here's a foot in the door so that we can speak with you uh, professionally and we can get a good grasp on what it is you guys need to get ahead. It's it's an interesting industry, and it's certainly a growth industry that we have to be part of here in this province and right across the country, as you rightfully suggest. Uh, it's good to have you on the show, Mackenzie. Appreciate your time. Can I make one last point, Pat? Sure. Go ahead. So the traditional system right now, uh, trucks come in out of uh, wherever the produce comes from, say it's out of country, it all gets stockpiled in a warehouse in Ontario or Toronto, correct? For the it, most part, yeah, okay. The imported produce. For the most part, the imported produce all gets trucked in from a different country during the winter, goes to a warehouse in Ontario. Then lobbyists for, from provinces go and bid on this produce to get it to their stores. So it travels from there to the building, gets stored, takes it from there to the island. And if it don't make it to the island in time, say it gets to the ferry and there's a big storm, it sits there, right, for five days in the back of that truck. Then it gets across, gets to the restaurant owners and gets to the stores. And I tell you what, Patty, it's thrown out. It's thrown out before it gets to the shelves. So all the fuel emissions that were burnt from wherever that produce started and got to Newfoundland were a lost cause. And we've just hurt the environment. We hurt the environment for no good reason, yeah. and we're getting terrible produce on the island. I mean, we see it in the grocery stores, let alone in the restaurants. Sure, there's a quality issue. On top of that, I would suggest if something comes from South America, and then we get an American ding, so it not only costs more and the quality Correct. is jeopardized, so there's a lot of reasons why growing more, whether it be hydroponically or otherwise, there's, there's nothing but upside to it. I'm a bit late for the news, but I appreciate the time. Stay in touch with the show, uh, Mackenzie. Thank you, Patty. This is our third time talking, and uh, next time I, we speak, I'll remind you of our last two times. We had good conversations. Appreciate it. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Mackenzie Warford, uh, 
One of the co-founders of the Canadian Hydroponic Association. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Reg. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, thanks for taking my call, there, Petty. I appreciate your patience. Uh, uh, sorry? I appreciate your patience. Thanks for staying with us. Not a problem. Don't worry. Uh, I'm calling again about the situation with the uh, hospital in Bonavista and the closures. And uh, uh, so uh, we've just noticed that there's going to be some uh, virtual care for the next few days. And from the information that we've gathered, uh, apparently February is not looking good for uh, uh, coverage for a doctor, right? So I'm wondering, uh, I, one thing I'd, li- I'd like for someone to help me with, and I hope uh, you, you're a person with a lot of connections, so I figured you might know somebody who could help us. Uh, we're looking at the legal aspect of the hospital being closed. I mean, the door being locked, Right. So what happens in uh, the scenario where the door is locked uh, and uh, the hospital is closed, there's no doctor in the ER. But uh, during, like, the weekdays, uh, there's, it's fully staffed, right? There, there is a doctor at the hospital. There's a nurse practitioner who could possibly be seeing patients or dealing with uh, routine things that people have at the hospital. But in the meantime, uh, when there's a closure... If you happen to end up with a serious bleed or an allergic reaction, okay, we, we've had a situation where you can't get an ambulance. So what happens? You go to the hospital, and they ref- they're going to refuse you entrance to the hospital. Although there's people inside those doors who could save your life. So, like, when, when uh, uh, the premier announced uh, because of the strike action of, of the ambulance people last week, and they called uh, the, the meeting of the House. He said there was due to the urgent and critical nature of the situation, which raises concerns for safety and well-being of the residents. So by having the hospital closed, don't that do the same thing? Yeah, I think the, the possible difference in those two scenarios is that there was not an essential uh, services tag applied to those private, uh, private ambulance operators, but there is to many of the other healthcare disciplines. So... I don't know if there's a direct overlap there, but I don't. I can't even understand why the doors would be locked if there's anybody in there that could be able to see some patients on some issues. Not all, but some. And that would certainly be a lot better than going up to a locked door to have to go to the next closest healthcare center. So I don't even know why the door is locked in the first place, to be honest. Well, this is our problem. We, we have been saying ever since summer, like, why can't a person go to the, to the hospital and be triaged? If the nurse determines that this person needs to get an ambulance to drive to Clarendale, or they can, they're quite capable themselves to drive to Clarendale, well, they can advise them. If they're not, if there's something that that person needs to be held there, like who could stop a, a serious bleed or whatever, if that person can be held there until the ambulance comes, if in some cases, like happened last year, we had red alert, there was no hospital, no ambulance in the area. So... What I'm saying is, is there anybody out there who, like, some there's there's enough liars in Newfoundland must know, is, is this really legal that you can close the door at the hospital and not per- permit people to go in there when their staff inside the door could save your life? It's a good question, Reg. I don't know the answer, but you say you've got some information that it doesn't look good for February either. Where do you get that yeah. info? 
um, Eastern out people. Okay. They they're the people who are scheduling doctors and stuff. And right now, I mean, it's not looking it's not looking good for February. And well, we know what February is. February is usually our worst month weather wise. I mean, so Arab people got to travel on the road and create all kinds of more issues, right? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly huge implications, whether it be Whitburn's emergency room closed for six-plus months and the diversions that you're experiencing in Vista, and the diversion of obstetrics from uh, Labrador and St. Anthony and from Gander to Grand Falls, Windsor, they all have the exact same overlap is that it makes more distance to travel and in winter months that just further complicates it. So I completely understand where you're coming from. Yep. I don't know how to speak to the legality issue, though. I really don't know if that contravenes the Canada Health Act. I, I, I just don't know. Right now. But I have contacts who would know. Yeah, okay, so it'd be nice to if we could find out some information on that. And and another thing, I mean, uh, we we're in a bit of a different situation in Bonavista than than some of the other uh, rural areas in Newfoundland. We know, uh, like I, I when I called you before, I explained to you, we have doctors who are willing to work in Bonavista right now. They've been willing to work in Bonavista all summer, but because of a pay issue, the, the government won't settle with them. So, I mean, all those, all those resources that the government are using to try to get doctors to come here, locums, whatever, and all the money be expended, like I told you earlier, uh, for the co- a year's coverage of locum in Bonavista is about $2 million. To our three doctors who are, who are willing to come to Bonavista and work is only going to cost, what, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars $800,000? So you're saving half your money. You're cutting out all this rhetoric and all we get from the government basically is oh it's uh, it's a problem with the nlma it's a problem with this and and that is not true that can be fixed patty because uh within the last month uh there was a meeting in bonavista a virtual meeting with the town council in bonavista and the government up, up the, the offer to those doctors who wanted to stay here so I mean, if they can do it once, if they can if they can up the offer from sixty percent of a of a coverage in in Clarenbaugh, a ER doctor in Clarenbaugh, to seventy, I'm sure they're going to up it to eighty or ninety or a hundred if that's what it takes to get doctors in rural Newfoundland. So the doctors that are willing to work there, when you say the government says it's a problem with the NLMA, is about what, for instance, if they don't have a license pay. or like? No, it's pay issue. It's just a pay issue. It is. It's just a pay issue. And I mean, government—they're holding the purse strings. Well, that's right. They—they have the only purse. But like I said, yeah. if they're willing, they're willing to pay out two million dollars a year for get coverage as a locum. But they're not willing to pay out uh, uh, six or seven or eight hundred thousand dollars a year to do to, to our three doctors to stabilize the healthcare in Bonavis, on Bonavista Peninsula. Yeah, same thing with the health authorities spending millions and millions of dollars a year for travel nurses. Yeah, That's right. there's a disconnect there that I don't quite understand. But I regarding know. the legality issue, Reg, I'm not so sure uh, where this conversation goes, but I'll bounce it off someone I know who okay. would have way more knowledge about it than I do. No, I, I, I just got one more little thing there. Now, sure. uh, every Wednesday right now, well, we had a we have a rally group that, that – uh, uh, as a picket line at uh, near the hospital entrance every well we started it last summer it was every day basically so during the winter months now we've caught it back to uh, Wednesdays most of those people who are going are actually our seniors and we would really uh, you know like right now uh, the problem we got is there's no support from community leaders anywhere I mean we're just a volunteer group of citizens and this 
picket line happens every Wednesday, 12 to 1. There's only a hour. You don't have to come for a hour. You can come for 15 minutes or 10 minutes. But this is to show, show support for the staff we have at the hospital already, doctors, nurses, whatever, LPNs, to show that, that we are out there advocating to try to help those people out. And I think it's about time that the residents of this area, not only Bonavista, I mean, this area takes in uh, 8,100 people is in our catch basement, which is Port Rexton, all those areas, Kings Cove, all up around Bonavista Bay. And, I mean, it's a sad when, when you get nobody, especially community leaders, to come out and stand with you to support those people. Fair enough, Reg. I appreciate the time here this morning. Right on. Take good care of yourself. Thank you very much for taking my call. My pleasure. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. And he mentioned lawyers there a couple of times during that conversation. You know, I read a story in the province of New Brunswick expanding seats at uh, Dalhousie, pardon me, at one of their universities for med school students. And, you know, there has been 65 out of the 80 seats at our med school for doctors from this province, or hopeful doctors from this province. You know, and then we, you know, expanding seats for retro nurses, whatever the case may be. And remember, at Memorial University, they, they seem gung-ho to create a law school. There's no shortage of lawyers. That's for bloody well sure. So every ounce of energy and money dedicated to starting a law school, wouldn't it make much more sense to deal with the shortages we have that are real? For instance, expanding the med school or further expansion of the nursing school seats? Doesn't that make more sense to actually focus on the needs of the people of the province versus the prestige of the university? Let's take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Beverly, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay. How are you doing? I'm really irked. <laughs> I, I, I applied for the oil uh, supplement there in, in uh, September. Mm-hmm. They got me back in December, told me that I was denied because I didn't put down a delivery date, a delivery address, oversight on my part. Uh, and I said, sure, you have the bill, which says, you know, but no, no, you have to re- reapply. So I, I filled it out again and put it back right away in the mail in December. All I'm trying to do is find out if they got it or what the, you know, the status is of it. I call the number. They say, well, you can, you know, press two and somebody will call you back. Well, yeah. I'm after doing that three days, four days. Somebody call me back. I'm after leave messages. Somebody call me back. I'm after emailing and then they send me back. Well, there's a large volume. All I'm trying to figure out, find out is if, they received it. That's all I'm trying to do. Yeah, it's pretty fundamental. So the email, did you use oilsupplement at gov.nl.ca? Yes, I did. Okay. So I wonder whether or not, if you put it back in the mail in December, whether they will technically reject it because the application process closed on November 30th, if I remember correctly. I know they mm-hmm. had some 30,000 applications for the rebate, maximum rebate up to $500. I'm told that they're going to have the checks out hopefully by the end of February at the latest. I don't know if that's going to come true, but if you put it back in the mail on, in December, I wonder will they just formally reject it because the application process closed on November 30, even though you had uh, initially applied prior to that. Hmm. Don't know. Yeah, because like I said, I mean, they never got back to me till the December. So when they did, I, I put it right in the mail the same day. She said, Oh, you're gonna have to reapply. I said, You can't put down my ad. I'm telling you, you know, because I'm not computer uh, computer accurate, you know. So I, I I don't know how to use it. I, it's the old mail, I'm old school. 
you know, and I said, okay, well, it, it was just, but I mean, on the bill, it even said deliver to, you know. Yeah, this kind of stuff is so irritating, isn't it? Now, if they called you in December, told you to reapply, they're going to be hard-pressed to use the deadline of November 30th as a way to not approve it because you were only told about the omission in December. And you're right. If you had to supply a bill and your bill was quite clear, the oil was delivered by whoever to this specific address, but you didn't put the address in the box on the form, I mean, come on. you know. Anyway, that's, yeah. kind of, that's the kind of stuff where, you know, it's either laziness or they've been given such harsh directives that if someone made a very fundamental error, even though you did supply the, 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 the delivery address the on the bill, yes, strange one, Beverly, don't know. And I'm surprised that the... There's got to be a database because they had to create one to generate the checks to go out the door, and that would include everyone whose application was approved. So your name is either on that list or it's not on the list. Pretty easy uh, question to answer. Yeah, yeah. Like like I said, she told me, I said, well, quick, can't you just write it down? Your, you know, oh, no, you have to reapply. So I printed it off and, and sent it off at the same time And because I phoned her because I received it. Applicate it in December by an email, so I can open it. But I don't know what to do with how to attach stuff or anything else. So I had to print it off, put it in the mail. So through the conversation, then she said, "Oh, reapply." But I mean, like I said, you have the information there. I'm entitled to that, like anybody else. Yeah, it's you know these are very very simple issues to rectify right at not only the source but of course at the government itself they saw the bill they know exactly what they're dealing with they know exactly what the requests were for information because you didn't put it on the right line to their satisfaction all of a sudden potentially rejected which would be unfortunate if that's the end result and i know there's been all kinds of programs that government has uh, received applications for this subsidy that grant or whatever the case may be so they've been bombarded but that's not really an excuse to not do the most fundamental to help Beverly get her $500 or whatever you're eligible for in the home heating supplement program. Uh, I'll, I'll zip off an email to that actual thing to see if I can get any information about do they have a compiled list of approved and rejected uh, applications and what's the deadline or the timeline for getting the checks out. So I don't know what I'll be able to find out beyond what you've already tried to do, mm -hmm. but I'll, I'll give it a shot. I mean, I, I can't even get to talk to somebody, you know. like Oh, yeah. They say press two, and you press two, be in the queue. Well, you can be in the queue all day. You know, nobody calls you. Oh, yes, I'm familiar with that. Uh, so that's the 4645 number? Yes. Yeah, I figured. Let's see if anyone else out there has any info, and specifically at the government. If someone can tell me whether or not it's uh, a possibility to understand who is and who is not going to receive that check if there's been a database where i simply just type in beverly and her surname and know that answer very very quickly it sounds like about a 10 second uh, piece of effort to me but let's see what we can find out i mean especially when i sent in the paper like she told sure. me to send it in yeah i you totally know? get it all right well thank you and you have a wonderful day you too beverly all the best okay bye bye okay bye you know, it sounds pretty simple. Okay, here's the bill. Delivery address is on the bill. So delivery address has been delivered to the government. Odd one. Let's go line number six. Colleen, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. Just, good. Reaching, out, just reaching out now to try to find, locate an owner of a baby carrier that was left behind at the Neal's Pond walking trail on Wednesday. Okay, what uh, kind of carrier was it? It's a baby carrier, like a backpack, uh, blue in color, and it was 
like navy blueish color, dark navy blue. Um, don't want to give out the name just in case the person. Okay, so it's a Mountain Equipment Co-op uh, backpack. Uh, and the gentleman that was using it had a child on his back. Uh, was speaking to my father. And I guess when he put the child in the car, he forgot to put his backpack in the car, the backpack carrier. Fair enough. And we don't know who the owner is. I'm after posting it on Facebook, on several different community groups here in Paradise. And uh, hopefully we could locate that owner to get that back to him. Well, I'm sure they've realized by now that they've lost their their carrier. So was that the Neils Pond hiking trail? Walking it was trail? At the, yes, Neils Walking Trail there in Paradise. It was in the parking lot, furthest parking lot away from Sobeys there at the end going towards the park. Okay. So do you want to give out your number or leave it with David? No, I can give you my numbers. Not a problem. It's, Go ahead. Uh, 687 3854. Yep. 3854. 687 3854. Baby carrier found Colleen. Okay, I've got it there. So if you're missing your baby carrier and you know that honestly that is yours, please do give Colleen a shout and get it back. Perfect. Thanks, Teddy. You have a great day now. The same to you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Welcome. Bye bye. Yeah, so I don't know if it was a baby Bjorn. Remember, they were all the rage. You had to have the baby Bjorn to lug around your tyke. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the P-U-B. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Dennis O'Keefe. You're on the air. Hello there. Patty, how are you this morning? Top shelf today. How are you doing? Um, pretty good, pretty good. Bit upset over the antics of the PUB again and, and jacking up our prices of oil, uh, furnace oil, everything really, but furnace oil in particular and diesel, 30 cents a litre, as you know. So I, I do have a few statements on that and on the PUB. And uh, the first thing I'd like to say is that oil is more than just the gasoline that we put in our cars. In reality... Just about everything we have in our lives is based on oil one way or the other, from the clothes on our backs to the medicine we use to the housing we live in to the cars that we drive, including electric cars. You can't have an electric car without oil or an oil component. And that's going to continue for a long time to come. So the pricing and availability is extremely important, as you know. Now, way back... Under the Grimes government, we set up the Petroleum Products Commission. George Saunders was the CEO. They prepared a formula. It worked. It worked well. And there was an interaction formula that had, could be used, but only extremely rarely. That was transferred to the PUB in probably the early 2000s, that uh, 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 responsibility to set the price of oil. So, okay. So here we are now, and we have the PUB, and it seems like it's out of control. They set a price for 12.01 Thursday morning, and it may be up or down a few cents, and everybody either buys gasoline or oil or doesn't, and then Friday morning, whammo, they come back with another 30 cents. So, in the past month, there have been two huge increases. One was 20 cents a few weeks ago on furnace oil, 
and now the hit uh, last night of another 30 cents. So, who are the PUB? Well, here they are. The chair of the PUB is Darlene Whalen. The vice chair is Dwanda Newman. The commissioners, other two commissioners, who are full-time commissioners, are John O'Brien and Christopher Pike. They can be reached at 709-726-8600 or at pub.nf.ca. And if a few hundred thousand people are upset this morning, then yes, they can call you, or yes, they can call me, or they can get on the phone and they can hammer at the PUB and the provincial government because all of these people are appointed by the uh, lieutenant governor in council, which is the provincial cabinet, which is Andrew Fury or his predecessor. But they, they... the PUB is responsible to the cabinet, and the minister in charge, who is pretty invisible, is Sarah Studley, who needs to come out, quite frankly, and ask where this commission is, where this study is that was set up way back in June to report on transparency of the PUB and to, uh, to explain to the public, like, well, why did it go up 30 cents last night? Nobody, they come out and they say, well, world conditions. Well... Why did it go up? Why is it going up in totalitarity? Now, just a couple of comments there, Doc. Okay. You know, people say, well, the politicians have got the PU increasing the price of fuel simply for the taxation uh, windfall to the government. I don't imagine that outweighs the political ramifications or the frustrations of the people. If people draw the link, certainly the amount of revenue they're getting on uh, diesel or furnace oils or gasoline will not temper the emotional, frustrated, angered uh, electorate. So I don't know how those two entities work together. But when we're told things like, okay, in the furnace oil business, one of their winter components is something I think is called New York Jet or something or other. Okay, and if that's true, if you look at the market itself, so heating oils traded on the New York Mercantile Exchange, the heating oil index went up only 1.25% since the contract was signed, which includes February of this year. So if that's the case... What's the correlation between how it's traded on the big board of the Mercantile Exchange and how that, con- uh, the, how that results in a 30-cent increase in furnace oil in one day in this province? I know there's not direct correlations with the price of barrel of oil in the liter of gasoline or direct correlations with heating oil exchange on the mercantile and the eventual price, but it can't be that big a disparity. I can't for the life of me understand how we see the spikes, especially when, if you look around the rest of Atlantic Canada, they're not experiencing the same thing. So how and why is that? Is it simply a different formula? Do they know something that other provinces don't know? Why is What is going on here? I cannot wrap my mind around it. You are right. What we need, you, you know the devil is in the detail. And we never get the detail. Nobody on the commission, they are four invisible people. They never speak publicly. Uh, they're all responsible to the minister. She talks around and, and around it and around it and set up a commission. It's only last week that the the study review, they announced public participation. And that now that's going to go on for another few months, and we'll be into next winter before we get into into any detail. And you're right, the, the benchmark price is the foundation of... Uh, 
uh, pricing for oil, and then you got in the total uh, markup, and then you put in the taxes, and of course the benchmark is converted to Canadian dollars, and you know then they build the price uh, uh, from there. They add a five cent liter uh, for the North Atlantic refinery to offset the come by chance. And they add in a zone differential within the province because of different costs on the East Coast than it is the West Coast. But we never, ever get any of the detail. And that's what, that's what we need to find, to find out exactly the question you just posed. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to have the answer. And, you know, with the minister, it's one thing to hear from Minister Studley. And it would be interesting to hear from her today, for instance, because this overnight increase, if someone was really deathly worried about filling up the oil tank yesterday, then today they must be out of their mind. So, but I think it'd be more helpful to hear from the PUB directly. And I know that's what you suggested. So I, we're on the same page on that one. You know, and then I saw Boyd, uh, one of my Twitter followers, and I also follow as well, said, even if we understand the recipe doesn't make the cake uh, taste any better. But my question, I think I would start with, not only describe the relationship between how the product is exchanged or sold on the exchange board, then help us understand why it's so vastly different in just with our neighbors, say, for instance, in Nova Scotia. If Even just start with those two things so that we can boil it down to, you know, layman's reference, a bit of context that we can all absorb versus whatever might be a long, convoluted uh, formula that we never really understand anymore at the end of the conversation if we just focus on it. So I'd love to have someone on. Absolutely right. Well, two no things two things there, Patty, and I don't want to take up all your time, but uh, two things there. I've been following the Brent price, which is the uh, Canadian-based price for uh, for oil products, and the price of Brent in the last three weeks has fluctuated up and down, not dramatically and not drastically, and not near enough to result in a 50 cent, more than a 50 cent increase overall in the price of uh, furnace oil and oil products and gasoline. And, you know, people got to realize that on April the 1st, they're going to be hit by our buddies in Ottawa. Uh, uh, I call them um, uh, Trudeau, TG, TGS, I call them, Trudeau, uh, um, Gibal, and Singh. Between the three, mm, they're, they're, they're a tragedy in the making, but that's another story. Yeah, it's two more uh, cents coming uh, when that hike hits. Uh, crude, Brent crude, of course, and we sell, that's how ours is measured in U.S. dollars, around 88.66 when I looked this morning. Yeah. It was up about 1.3% uh, uh, over the course of 24 hours, so no big spikes in oil in the last uh, seven days anyway. So I know you want to talk about one more thing before I run out of time, so go ahead, Doc. The only thing I want to say, and I wish the media would get it right, Memorial University, in this dispute over the, the seminar on Fogo Island, Memorial University didn't spend $100,000. They spent $57,000 of their own money. Now, whether that was well spent or not well spent will have to be compared with somebody telling us what exactly they got out of that expenditure that was worth the money that was spent. But out of Memorial's money, out of Memorial's pocket, out of their budget was $57,000, not 100000 No, I didn't say it was either. I said it was $57,000, 53 recovered. Pardon me? 
You did. But no, I didn't. I said they they can talk about an ultimate price tag of hundred thousand dollars, but fifty three thousand dollars was recovered in fees from other participants, which I absolutely did say, which takes yeah, it did. well down from hundred thousand dollars. There are a couple of unknowns, uh, notably that some of the staff representing Memorial University may have traveled on budgets coming from their own departments versus the direct expenses that were reported by the executive level at Memorial. So I don't think we have a clear picture. But I backed out the external. Uh, contributions out of a hundred thousand dollars. So, yeah. you 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 did, but it was only a half hour ago. I heard the news component at VOCM saying cost memorial a hundred thousand dollars. So most people in their mind have that figure. Wow, a hundred thousand dollars. But actually, of our money, it was a hundred. It was fifty-seven thousand dollars, and added in. You're right. Any travel expenses that might have taken place. Well, so we need the full picture, and then. In terms of profile and in terms of value to the province and so on, and in terms of all the money we spend on tourism and all the other things in our province to promote ourselves, was it worth the $57,000 or not? It's a fair question. I don't know how you measure immediate success on monies spent. Would we have sold ourselves short had that work been done at, uh, I don't know, the, the battery Part, part of Memorial University with some pretty mm-hmm. nice-looking surroundings. Yeah, or, that's right. Or at JAG or at wherever. You know, would we have come across that much worse? The defense coming from Rob Greenwood, of course, is that Shorefast Foundation, Zita Cobb, one of the founding partners of this group, so they thought because of that and maybe other contributing factors, they'd be willing to take the PR optic problem that was inevitable, and they made the decision. Whether it's good or bad, I don't know. I'll leave it up to individuals, but I tried to incorporate all the real numbers into how I talked about it. Uh, Last one, Doc, and I know it's easy to govern from the sidelines, because we all do it. Yeah. With that issue going on in the Outer Battery, what did you make of how Council has approached it? It looks like they're trying to see a full amendment to the City Act, as opposed to the one offered amendment here to deal with what people might call nuisance lighting. What did you make of all that? Teddy, I think it's Abhorrent. I think that uh, this is an incident that needed and still needs to be dealt with before something more uh, tragic happens. That uh, to get us, you you know, you can you can make an adjustment, a partial adjustment, and in the meantime, work toward a full revision of the St. John's Act, which is needed. But this immediate problem could have been dealt with. Minister Abbott had the solution. All he required was a request from City Council to, for the province to uh, pass legislation to empower the city to deal with the situation. And had that happened, he would be promised that in the sitting of the House of Assembly in March, that authority would be given and the city could go on and deal with the problem. It's no good in just ignoring it. It's only going to get worse and worse. Sure. And so it, it, short, short answer is it should have been dealt with and dealt with right away. And not only Minister Abbott, who has no real direct authority on that front, you know, he is the member for the area, but even the minister responsible for those amendments, uh, Crystalyn Howell, says that she was also on side. Well, at least that's what John Abbott told us. Uh, appreciate the time, Doc. Have a nice and, weekend. And pa- pa- Patty, Sheila, Sheila O'Leary made the right move. Well, certainly the general public, I believe that to be the case. They think that, you know, something should be done and it could be done, but it wasn't done. And so consequently, the only one who voted in favor got a little bit of a win there. Yes, another laughing stock is what it is. <laughs> thanks, Doc. Okay, thanks, Fetty. All the Bye. best. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, John wants to talk about the Trinity Loop. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. John, you're on the air. 
Good morning, Paddy. How are you? Great. How you doing? Not too bad. Uh, call about the city government are looking for proposals and the uh, old Trinity Loop out there. Yeah, the uh, Trinity Loop Amusement Park. They sent out an RFP uh, proposal deadline, I think, early March. Yep. Yeah, well, the thing is, I don't see, I don't hear many people talking about it. Or you think the government be out? I mean, when you get a chance to try to promote this and maybe get as much money as they can for it and get something going. I mean, there's, I mean, there's 27 acres of land there apparently, and I wish I had the money to invest in it. I think it's a going on myself. You know, I mean, it, uh, I was there last summer and the summer before it. Took my grandchildren down. I mean, I mean, the layout is there for. I mean, I mean. The white person got that, but I'm telling you, they can make an awful lot of money. I mean, the government's pumping money into all kinds of stuff last summer, like you say, different things. And, and I mean, I'm sure they could probably help someone out or someone. I mean, I something should be done with it, you know. I mean, I, I agree, something should be done with it because it's a beautiful spot. Um, yeah. Do you read the RFPs when they come out for government, or is this one just catch your, your attention? I read something on social media about the city government. I never actually got a government release myself. You know, I mean, that's the kind of way, but. Oh my God! I mean, somebody uh, is—it's almost like it's kept so quiet that, to me, it's like I guess maybe maybe some people want to get it and want nobody else to know about that. It's actually almost like it's going to go and be sold, basically, and people can say, "Geez, I never know nothing about that." Yeah, <laughs> I, I, if I remember correctly, I think there's already a price tag assigned to it. What they're looking for is they what your proposal entails. So they're only going to accept it if you've got something like. Uh, Cottages to be built, I believe, was one a campground or an RV park, stuff like that. They're going to accept those types of proposals. And if I'm not mistaken, they said the price tag at $55,000. And there's a Crown Land grant associated with this, too, for whoever the, the successful applicant is. Well, there's a fine piece of property for $55,000. I know, I know you got that right. They might fix it up. But the thing is, I mean, you take they could open up something similar to the Trinity Loop again. And, I mean, they could put something there for everybody, put some cabins there and a fully serviced RV park. And not only that, to draw the golfers there, basically put a, put a, I mean, with all that land, you can put a golf course there and then you have something for everybody. Yeah, you can put six holes or nine holes or something yeah. or other out. Uh, absolutely. There's definitely a, a play to be had there. I don't know what the best idea would be and how profitable one or the other would be, but it's certainly a prime spot, no doubt about that. So, oh, and, and, fair I mean, enough. You know, People that are traveling around this island, I don't know, was because come home here last year, but it seems like a lot of people are starting to travel here more and more, and the weather's getting nicer. And be ashamed that someone don't get it and actually put it to the best possible use that could be. Lots of different things, you know. Like hear some other people talk about, and see what they think about, and what, what you know, what they may have an idea what to do with it, you know. I I'm happy to talk about it because anything anyone who wants to come forward and develop something that's going to create a bit of attraction for the area, maybe create a few jobs. And I think the government actually did a pretty extensive inspection of the, whether it be the different buildings and or the trestle bridge that's out there. So some of the work's yeah. been done. I'd be just yeah. curious to see who's going to have a, have a swing at it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was there last year again with my, my grandchildren. You know, and I mean, there's actually, I mean, I mean, the, the grandchildren were actually amazed that it was an abandoned uh, uh, amusement park there. And I mean, it's where we've been to Florida and stuff like that. I mean, to go there and see all this like they were quite amazed with it, you know. And actually, I was kind of amazed with myself because it's sin to see it gone that far, you know. Yeah, I mean, it just looked like people up and walked away, and all of a sudden, it's just a home for graffiti artists. Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing is, it was anywhere close to anywhere else, it'd probably be all burnt down by now. But I mean, some of the buildings, I mean, bit of markings on them, a few windows beyond. But yeah, mostly now it's clean up there. And I mean, I mean, the layout is there for. I mean, what a spot. <laughs> was there a Ferris wheel out there? 
there's a Ferris wheel out there and I got pictures there. I took some pictures. It's actually most of it are, well, not all the seats, but I mean the, the, the frame of it. I mean, it's basically just fell down on the ground. And everyone walked away. Everybody walked away. Yeah, like the buildings are there, like the windows are gone out of them, doors are gone, the, uh, the train cars are there. The, I mean, they're all gutted out, but basically, but I mean, there's lots of graffiti marked on, but I mean, there's trees grew up on the train cars, probably 20 feet high, but I mean, the thing is, a couple of months' work, I mean, no, actually, I wouldn't call it a big amount of garbage, there's a bit of wooden stuff there, and, but I mean, there's no actual garbage there, like, like, like say, like, you know, I mean, like a dump type of thing, but I mean, it wouldn't take long for someone to clean it up and You'd be surprised how fast someone could actually do something with it, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, especially if you're trying to build something, for instance, like a campground or an RV park. It's not like you're going to put an amusement park back there necessarily with a Ferris wheel and a roller coaster and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the eventual winner will bring to the table, but hopefully someone is making some pitches at it. And I'm glad you brought it up on the show. And I, I read the story about it, and it never made it out of my mouth on the show, but I'm glad we're talking about it today. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the time, John. Take care. Take bye care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, there is an opportunity there, to be sure. Uh, and also, I wonder about some of the respondents to RFPs regarding marble. I know that's one of my favorite topics because I think there's major opportunities out there, but can they be satisfied without that in and around the neighborhood of a million dollars a year with subsidy coming from the province? Not too sure. All right, let's go to line number two. Jack, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad, I suppose. How are you doing? Oh, not bad, but I guess I'm, I'm like everybody else this morning and calling in complaining about the price of fuel and, and diesel and that that went up again. Paddy, I'd like to put a challenge out there to the PUB or the minister responsible for the PUB to come online and justify this increase because I don't think they can. I mean, it's ridiculous. Where, where's it all going to end to? I don't know. I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. I burns oil. And back before I put in the mini splits... I burned 3,500 litres of oil for the year. Now, you do the math on that at today's rates. At $1.98 a litre, plus the tax, which is 228 that brings you up to $7,970. That's just for oil. Put an average of $100 a month on that for light. Now you're up to $9,170. No now, small chunk of change. In. Yeah, okay. I put the mini splits in, and yes... I went from burning 3,500 litres down to 1,700 litres. Still, 1,700 litres at that is going to put me at nearly $4,000, and plus the 1,200, I'm at $5,000. I'm $4,000 cheaper. Now, yes, it costs, uh, at the most, I think it was probably 100 or $125 extra on my light bill in the colder months. So, yes, the mini splits will help you cut it back. But that's, that's not what my call is about this morning. I wanted to put that information out there for people who are thinking about putting in mini splits and is there going to be a save? Right now, unless they jacks up electricity, yes, there is a save. Uh, right. we, we appreciate ours uh, for a variety of reasons. It does come with some savings and cost recovery. Uh, yeah. Plus, I think in some of those sultry summer days to turn out a bit oh, of cool great. air, love that. I mean, that's yeah. my favorite feature of it, to be honest with you. And Me you know, too. It, even yeah. just to heat up that main living area out in the kitchen living room, exactly. it does a great job of it. So uh, I, do, I really yeah. do appreciate that mini split, i got to say. Yeah, for sure. But like I said, I'd like to, to put it out there to the PUB or someone who's responsible in there, a CEO or something, to come on, on your show or to come on the news or whatever and explain to people how they can justify that 35 cents on diesel last night and 30 cents on the fuel oil. Madness. And not, madness. not only that, I'd like to make the comment too, these big oil companies, they'll come on quarterly 
and tell you how many billions of dollars that they're making. I mean, it's ridiculous. Lablas, uh, Sobeys, and all these people come on, and they'll tell you how many billions of dollars they made quarterly off of the food. I mean, how, how are people going to live? It's an excellent it's just, question. I, I don't know. You know, like I mean, it's unreal. And and you can say you can say change the liberal government. Yes, I changed the liberal government tomorrow if I could. But I don't know if we're going to be any better off than anybody else in there because uh, it, it's just gone on that much now that everybody is just gouge, gouge, gouge. Yeah, it's one of the, you know, look, the easy thing to do here is to straight up either blame, blame the provincial government or the federal government for everything involved in the side of this. But I think you ask a pretty important question. Let's just say, for instance, David Brazel was the premier today. Does that mean the price of fuel isn't, isn't going to go up? You know, like, the, is no, that no, how no, it works? No, no. I, I don't think no. so either, but... I don't think so, no. You know, there no. can be legitimate uh, yeah. discussions or debates about the carbon tax imposition, especially on home yeah. heating fuels. I'm into that discussion, yeah. but yeah. I don't think an explanation is forthcoming. And the grocery stores, they say, well, the operation costs have gone up extremely high as well. Okay, but even Empire Group, who owns Sobeys, and then they're, they're answering questions to shareholders, they quite clearly said, not only is the revenue up because of the higher prices and their input costs are up, but so are the profits. Profits, exactly. They absolutely are. Not because I exactly. say so, because they said so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the government is not willing to do anything about this because they're, they're gaining too much off of, off of the taxes. The same thing. I mean, I remember when I was buying oil and there was no HST in it. I mean, why can't they go back and do that? If the government says, oh, we can't control the price of gas, or we can't control the price of oil, you can control the price of taxes. You can turn around and take off the HST off of the fuel oil like you done years ago. Yeah, there was a holiday right. on it. That, that's true. That's the only lever they can pull you know, so as far as I can tell. So why can't do something like that? They, they, they say they can't do nothing about it. That's a crack. Yeah, they, they can't do something about it. They have to taxes. They have the gas right. tax. They did indeed do that. They took out eight cents of the gas tax that was uh, in place. So there's been some moves, which, to your point, means they can do something. They can. Sure they can. Yeah. Sure now with can. food, and what's going to happen now when this carbon when this carbon tax comes? I mean, that, that that's not wait till that comes in July. And they're going to, that's going to turn around. I'm not sure how much it's going to cost, but it's, it's going to be probably another 20, or 20 cents or so, if not 30. On gas, it's going to be two cents. Yeah, two two additional cents, yeah. 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 And yeah. then the full I application. Don't I don't know where it's all going to come to, Betty, but I really don't. But, I mean, there's something got to be done. I mean, people are... And, and, and you'll see it. People are, are, are going to wind up in, in the Waterford. People are, are mentally going to be sick and people are going to be cold. People are going to be hungry. I mean, there's something got to be done. And, and I don't know what it is. And I'm sure a lot of people don't know what it is. But we've got to band together and we've got to start to do something. I appreciate the call this morning, and, Jack. And, and like I said, my call this morning is for someone from the PUB or the minister responsible for the PUB to get on your line or get on TV and explain to us how this 30 cents and 35 cents happened this morning. Be more than happy to talk to them. All right. Take care, Petty. You too, Jack. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time left for you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the Child and Youth Counselor with the Association for New Canadians. That's Cassie Rich. Hi, Cassie. You're on the air. Hi. Thank you so much for having me this morning. My pleasure. Great. So um, my name is Kathy Kathy Rich, as you said, um, and I am a Child and Youth Programs Counselor with the Association for New Canadians. Um, And the reason I'm calling in today is to talk about our backpack drive. Um, So we are asking the public to um, 
consider donating new or gently used backpacks um, for the kindergarten to grade 12 students that we serve in St. John's and surrounding areas. So, our, you know, what at the beginning of the school year, there's all these types of drives, and rightfully so. I mean, we do it here at VOCM Cares, and for instance, uh, you know, with the old block the bus. So are we focusing on some who are now much recent, more recent arrivals? Yes, absolutely. Um, so most Canadian-born folks think of back-to-school season as, as September, like you were saying, doing all these back-to-school drives um, back in September. Um, but we have kids arriving um, and starting school all throughout the year. Um, every single week we get new kids. Um, yeah, just not, not just in September. So even next week we'll have around nine students starting um, in, the, in the K-12 system here, um, yeah, in, in St. John's and surrounding areas. So yeah, hopefully, back to school season all the time. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's kind of the point I was making, and I guess clumsily slow. So, you know, in addition to try to get from some of the necessities, whether it be the backpack and the pens and the crayons or leads or scribblers or what have you, what other types of supports do you offer students at the association? Um, so my department specifically works with child youth um, in the in the K to twelve system, and then we have a uh, um, we have. Uh, Scott, who is our um, child and youth engagement officer for 18 to 30 year olds. Um, so specifically with the child and youth, um, we do school registrations and orientations. So we'll get all that uh, registration forms done. Um, we'll submit those to the schools. We'll give them um, brief bits of information about the school system, uh, give them school tours of their new schools. Um, so it's all about that school start, showing them how to get the, the bus. Um, things like that. We also do uh, school programs within schools, such as after-school programs, lunch and learn sessions, um, which gives them gives children a chance to um, both learn and, and do their homework, of course, as well as socialize um, with other Canadians. Um, we also do uh, summer programs. This year, we're even talking about um, doing an Easter program um, while students are out of school. So we're we're super busy all year round. I bet you are. So uh, do you need brand new backpacks or some gently used? Because I know when my boys were growing up, you know, they'd get bigger, consequently need, need a bigger backpack. And, of course, the one they use still in perfectly fine condition and or they just wanted one with a different logo or something on it, whatever the case may be. So can a gently used backpack uh, serve the purpose? Absolutely. We will take gently used um, as long as it works well, uh, not too dirty type thing. Um, the main goal here is to make sure that our new Canadians are starting school off with uh, a more equal footing with their peers. Um, so, yeah, a gently used backpack would definitely work. Now, every child is different, whether it be whatever grasp of uh, English that they have and or their socialization as they go to school in these unfamiliar surroundings. But by and large, what's the adjustment look like? Um, the adjustment is really different for every single child. Like sure. you said, every child is different in terms of their language, um, everything like that. So it really depends on the child, and we work with each child individually. Um, when they first start, we'll do an assessment along with um, the school and the district um, to see where their language level is at, what their needs are like. We'll connect them with EAL teachers, which is English as an additional language. Um, so. They both help with, of course, the language as well as integrating them into their classrooms, um, making sure they have what they need. Um, and all of the schools have been super supportive um, with, with helping kids with that transition. Um, we also work closely with uh, school guidance counselors. Um, they, of course, know um, the development of the children better than anyone. Um, so they're, they're really able to, to help us see what they need, um, both socially and emotionally, um, 
along with that uh, with that educational piece. So if I have a gently used or a new backpack I'd like to donate, what do people need to do? Um, so the best thing to do would be to drop it right off to 144 Military Road. That's our main office downtown um, during business hours, uh, which is 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. So that's 144 Military Road. If that's not something feasible for you, if those are your work hours, um, you can email us at cape, C-A-Y-P, at A-N-C-N-L.ca. That's C-A-Y-P at ancnl.ca and uh, we can we can talk about alternate arrangements even if we have to pick it up or you can give our, our office a call at 709-722-2828 sounds great appreciate the time good luck with this cassie thank you so much i appreciate your time my pleasure take care bye bye it's cassie rich she's child and youth Ave- our counselor with the association for new canadians let's go to line number four good morning elizabeth you're on the air yes good morning harry good morning to you uh, I want to say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you and your family. The same to yours, Elizabeth. Thanks. And so this morning, I'd like to throw out a bouquet to Tom Alston. Is that right? I didn't see that coming. No. What? What's the bouquet for, Elizabeth? You know, like on all the hard work that he does, and then he's colleagues, right? And, you know, like... like I know, like, I can remember campaign, you know, like, going around the doors. I know him a good many years. And, like I said, he's after going a long way. And I'm so proud of him, right? He's just a type of man. Well, you know... He's got a good head on his shoulders. Fair enough. The the, uh, rule of thumb for so many people is that they just dislike, distrust every politician simply, and that's that. And especially when you take on a portfolio like Tom Osborne is in now with as the Minister of Health Community Services. Interestingly, it's not that long ago that Tom Osborne became the longest-serving MHA in the history of the province. Well, since 1949, anyway. Yeah, like I said, right, he's... Uh, like to me, I just see that way about him, right? That I like to send out a bouquet to him. Well, I'm sure he appreciates it because he gets a lot of bricks. What? He gets a lot of bricks. That's the old thing here on this program. Either right. someone throws a brick or a bouquet, and he gets a lot of the bricks, so I'm sure he appreciates the scattered bouquet. Yes, and um, all the best to him. And. I had a bit of surgery done early in January, and I got to say to my doctor at the time and his staff, I had nothing but good things to say. Well, I'm glad you called this morning, and so how are you feeling after your surgery? Uh, I'm coming around, but like I said, it could be... It could, uh, be a, a while, but like I said, I'm hoping and praying that it's, I'm going to be like on demand again. Let's hope so, Elizabeth. I appreciate your time this morning, and I wish you nothing but the best of health. You too. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Dave asked an interesting question. You know, this is in regards to the backpack drive that they're doing at the ANC, whether or not a promotional backpack would be suitable. And I'm in the 
throes of uh, responding. I suppose it might depend on the type of product being promoted, but I'll also give Deb the number to give them a shout at the association at 722-2828 to ask that specific question. That's a good one. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Sean wants to talk about the Labrador Island link, possibly, and Rosalind there on the cost of oil. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Sean, you're on the air. Morning, Patty Daly. How are you? Couldn't be better. How about you? Likewise. Beautiful day out here. A little bit of breeze, but we can take it. Yep, a bit um, more coming. That, yes, absolutely. Uh, put more windmills up there, although I'm sure there are areas that they don't appreciate it, like on the Port of Port Peninsula, but it's going to bring an awful lot of employment to the area, and future generations will probably stay in the province. They've lost so many people to the Yeah, I, we don't have a great connection, Sean. So what project are you talking about as being a great one? Well, I was just mentioning, I was just mentioning the wind project by a by a lady, I think, yesterday. Um, I think she had a picket line or something going on up there. And, uh, you know, I remember when, when my father was a member for that area, an MHA for that area, Port of Port, he always talked about trying to keep our children around, keep the employment going. And that's why we had liner board in Stephenville. And, of course, that spun off into all kinds of jobs. So I agree with uh, with my, my third cousin, I think, Dave Callahan, that, that you know, we really need that kind of project. And I, and, I, and I hope that we can get around these obstacles uh, quite rightly so that the people are concerned about. But that wasn't my topic, but it is a good one for another day. Before you move on, though, Sean, so to make that the, uh, the outcome here, the questions that people are asking, whether they are on point or not, if they don't get answers, then, of course, the mind goes to worst-case scenario. So it's in everyone's best interest, and I know World Energy has answered a lot of questions, but even if it's the specifics about water quality with this test tower and stuff, just go answer their questions. And if there's no issue to be concerned with, if there's nothing to see here, that's a better outcome than currently not being acknowledged, not having the questions answered, because when we all face that situation, we all think that there's something wrong and that no one wants to talk about. So if I was John Risley and or Minister Davis or anyone else, every single time I heard a question like that, immediately I'll be trying to answer it just to keep those channels of communication open, because if they feel closed, people think there's something wrong. I couldn't say it any better, Patty. I totally agree with you. That's why I said a minute ago, I think we've got to get around these obstacles by uh, by dealing with the issues that that lady brought up. I couldn't argue about that for a minute. If I was there, I always put myself in the people's situation who are on that firing line, and I, if I was living out there, I'd be just as concerned. Sure. So I applaud, I applaud her and everyone. And, uh, but I, I'm the fixed link, you know? And I, I, I have a little health book called Channels, Channels and Tunnels. And all over Europe, especially over in Norway and these places, there are tunnels and tunnels everywhere. I mean, it's, it's not an issue. Uh, and we could do the very same. There's offers, in this case, done many, many years ago. Bring it up to date, I guess, and, and offer and put, a, you know, a, uh, an offer or a, uh, a to the general public, uh, to, to companies that are skilled in this, and let them come back with some proposals, you know. Like, we could bring the train back through Labrador. Instead of just going on the Quebec North Shore Rail line, that could come right into Newfoundland. And, like, the traffic that would come here from all over North America, just to explore where the Vikings landed, to see the beautiful federal parks now, like up in Labrador, you know, the, the most untouched areas, you know, the planet. And it's such an amazing place for tourism and 
like from that will flow more people who want to come and live here. It would grow our economy, which is what we need. We have the oldest population in the country per capita, and we have to grow it. We have to grow it now. We don't have much time. You know, uh, we really need to do it immediately. So I think this this request for proposals is timely. Uh, the highway coming across to Red Bay is is practically done. So it's time. Let's get this thing going. And uh, you know, if we can do the Confederation Bridge. I know the cows were uh, Fred Cow and his company was very much involved in that. And look what a great thing that is. So this. Yeah. Okay. American, it's not we that. We don't have to worry about airplanes and and planes not flying anymore. We can drive our own cars. The question I would ask is. How, what is the population base in reasonable proximity to either end of that link for people to see it as something they want to entertain? You know, very much unlike the channel, because the channel sees millions of passengers every single year because the population bases in between England and France are what they are. And, of course, the very mobile nature of Europeans anyway, uh, which is really different than us. And the Confederation Bridge, I think, is a fair comparison in that, it might be a private sector company say, okay, here's what we're willing to do, here's what we see as the forecast of cost, here's what we foresee as a toll to travel through, because then we've got a bit more to consider. Because the geotechnical concerns, they can be addressed. I mean, if you can build a tunnel, or the Saken Tunnel, or all of the uh, tunnels in Norway, it can be done. It's whether or not, say for instance, if you live in the most densely populated part of the province here on the Northeast Avalon, would it be an option people would consider to drive up to the Great Northern Peninsula into Labrador to get to wherever they're going? And consequently, would it be the same question asked of folks living in Toronto or Mississauga or Georgetown or Montreal or Trois-Rivières? Would they see that as an attractive option? I don't know the answer to that question, but we'd have to have uh, some Patty, examination of that. Yeah, and you know, that's, but, but that examination's been done. The biggest traffic, and you can talk to someone like a Roger Flood who used to run Dan Ross, and Marine Atlantic, the biggest traffic is going to be your tractor trailers, your your service, uh, like your whole service industry, coming all the way from the states all the way over to here, and they don't want to be waiting on one side of the or, or the other side of a uh, of a Gulf trying to get across. And, and and what is obviously going to be a lot worse weather coming going forward. Uh, you're not going to you're not going to have as many days next year, and the same goes with year after that that you'll be able to sail, and then them precious goods are being are being delayed on other end, and we all know the the quality of uh, of fruits and vegetables that we get coming in here, and other products is terrible. It doesn't last very long at all. But we wouldn't have that issue, Patty, if we had had vehicles just just winging across uh, Quebec and from Ontario and Quebec and even the U.S. on down across uh, Labrador and into uh, and into Newfoundland or the, the island. I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's a legacy project. It will finally join up all ten provinces. We don't have it now, and, and that's our that should be our legacy project for this government to put out the the uh, the uh, proposal or ask for, for request for proposals and get it in now. Let's get going on this. I think it's a fabulous thing. So so like like, like the business cases in made, Patty already on just transportation of goods, not not even counting tourism. And and everybody I meet wherever I travel in the world, they're dying to get to Newfoundland, but they keep saying. I don't want to go on that ferry. The the airplanes are terrible, and I can't get a rent-a-car and all these things. Well, that covers all of it. We don't have to think about it anymore. <laughs> okay. 
I think there's a little bit of thought left to give to it, especially if it's going to be a private company that bills it and charges a toll. Their examination of the economic upside will be the be-all and end-all, not what we think might be the case, even if it's commercial traffic or people in their own personal autom automobiles as tourists and or people in Labrador simply with the much easier way to get to the autumn simply by driving as opposed to either on the Labrador ferry or the extraordinary cost of flying. So there is certainly, I still think, yet a conversation to be completed on it. But yeah, anyway, I know that there's many people in support and so be it. Let's have the, let's have the chat. And Patty, there's yeah. a business case done already by the trucking industry, already done. And if they were to just all join hands and take it on and charge a toll, they'd be thrilled. So then everyone else can come on board. And, and I don't don't discount the value. I mean, it's such a, a value proposition for us, and we bring population in here to live. It's just going to be fabulous. And everyone's going to want to do that trip. Like, yes, planes and, and, and the boats are fine, ferries are fine. But to be able to get in your own car and not have to con be, be concerned about that uh, is just amazing. And all we're going to do is look at the la just look at the increases in our tourism over the last 20 years. It's been amazing, and it will grow in leaps and bounds, and we need all of that. Anyway, thanks for your time, Patty. Appreciate yours, Sean. Take care. Okay, take all care. Bye-bye. Right, yeah, uh, there's a couple other things that, you know, not they would just have to be considered. Is I know the Route 130 is nearing completion, but if let's just say what Sean and Danny Doomeresque, for instance, say is will manifest itself, and that would be tons of commercial traffic and tons of uh, tourists, for instance. There's no question there would have to be, even if the private sector says, okay, let's go. We're willing and wanting to do it. Here's what it's going to cost, you know, relatively speaking, for the end, uh, end result of the toll. Okay, that, that's great. And the federal liberals actually say they're interested in this. They put it in the hands of the Canada Infrastructure Bank. I don't think I've ever heard the conservatives take a position on it. But then there would be some provincial responsibilities to absolutely do the required upgrade, highway network on the Great Northern Peninsula in particular. And that's not to dissuade from the possibility of it. It's just one of the components of the entirety of whether or not it actually happens. Uh, this is what I love, though, is I just mentioned it off the top this morning, and it gets some traction, which is exactly what we're trying to accomplish here, talking about it or anything else that's on your mind. And when we take a break for this newscast, Rosalind, appreciate your patience. She's there to talk about the cost of oil, and she's not alone. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Rosalind, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. And how are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? Oh, wonderful. I'm glad you had a good New Year. Anyhow, my darling, I, am, uh, I appreciate you taking the call. I don't mind waiting because I listen to you every day anyhow. But this oil rebate thing, that uh, Beverly that called in said you couldn't get no answer. I try, my uh, application went in the 21st of September. And... Right in the middle of October, I heard people getting their rebate back, so I started calling. I used to call at least once a week to uh, see what what was the deal, because I'm here living by myself in the whole house that there's no way I can get electric heat put in or a heat pump or anything like that. So here I am. I got a little heater going this morning to try to keep warm to save on the oil. In the meantime, I called this number. I'll give you the number now, and I'll tell you after. Uh, the number is 844-729-729. Four six four five. Yeah. 
and you got to stay there. She'll say, you know, you can call you back or blah, 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 but stay on the line, and they'll get back to you. I used to put her on speaker and wait. <clears throat> but anyhow, I called the the last time, the 12th of December, uh, it was the last time I called, and when I called, she, I said to her, I said, look, you're saying the same thing every week. You know, it is in the process, you'll get blah, blah, blah. But in the meantime, she said, and I said, well, you're saying, you know, you're saying that all the time. Well, she said, I'll get a hold of my supervisor and see what the problem is. That was the 12th of December. On the 14th of December, I got a letter in the mail saying why uh, I was rejected at the time because I didn't have the right address to go with the uh, application. Okay. The address on, me, on my, you know, the bill that I get from the oil company was in Walter Kingscove. On the application, I made sure, because my first name is Mavina, put that on there, Mavina, Rosenwater, and the address. So anyhow, this is what they're saying. So anyhow, she's, the letter states, so anyhow, I got it all ready, sent it back in again, phoned all the company and got everything and, and sent it all back in again. And I kept calling again, and they couldn't find it in the mail. So I don't know, that's about, oh, probably three weeks ago now, when they told me that... Uh, uh, they told me that they fi- finally found a letter that I sent in. I sent that in the 19th of December. But in the meantime, they're crazy. There's crazy going on. I don't know what they're doing with the oil. I mean, right now it's over $2 a liter. And I, that's all I can eat house with. I ain't, ain't going to freeze, starve to death, and even me poor cat. <laughs> God bless her. Is uh, the, the cat food is getting so expensive it's hard to feed her. Other than that, now, my darling, I know that woman, she's frustrated as well, and, like, I'm an uh, old senior, an uh, old senior, and, you know, one in, one income uh, coming in, and that's it, you know, unlimited. But all the people around here, the ones that are burning oil, they're all seniors, and they're the same thing. I mean, when the oil man comes, is their name and Kingscope marked on the bill. So I don't know what their problem is. I don't know either. Now, some people have had the rebate. We were told there was uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 applications for this home heating supplement. And the I'm, I'm told that everybody who has had an application that was accepted by the government, they'll get their check by the end of February, which also seems like a fairly long time to wait because the application process closed on the 30th of November. So I'm glad you you know that people are getting theirs. And hopefully, did you say you got yours? A lot of the people got there as like, soon as it come out, like in October. Yep. But now when I, I called the other day again, after they found the bill, the last letter that went in, and anyhow, I called, and she said, oh, you will get it, you know, so anyhow, I called again last week. And she said, well, you're lucky if you get it by the end of December, uh, end of February. But, you know, I just, just crazy, because there's no, you know, like $500 now to top up my tank, and there's no way I can do it. You know, just absolutely nuts. Anyhow, I got my little heater going because electricity, I suppose, is cheaper than the oil now. A little bit, but you know, when we're talking about how expensive things are, even in the world of going to the grocery store, canola oil is three times more expensive than gasoline. Imagine. Just upside down world. I know. It don't make sense because people say, oh my, did the gas go up? No, the gas didn't go up, but the oil did. I mean, you know, like the gas, you go to the grocery store, and I know. I used to go down and for a hundred dollars, I'd probably only go once a month. For a hundred dollars, I could buy enough of food for a month. But now, go down with the same amount of money, you can only buy it for a day or a couple of days, and that's crazy. And then I got to drive twenty-one miles one way to get anything. And I try to make it short. I go to a convenience store in uh, 
Playco, C&D Convenience. And I tell you the truth, most of the stuff I get up there, because it's, it's closer, and most of the stuff is a bit cheaper than what it is in the grocery stores, the big ones. Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the tricks, isn't it? How close you are to a store to get what you need. Yeah. Rosalind, I appreciate making time. You want to say anything else this morning? No, I, I appreciate everything. I just wanted to pass by. Our uh, Lighthouse Festival will be July the 23rd. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to see you guys. Did you get your calendar this year? I did. Thank you very much for sending it. Hey, I sent one to you and David. Hopefully, God, it's not the same as the ones we've had out, but anyhow, uh, just, re- just a reminder, on the 23rd is the Lighthouse Festival, and they got a good lineup already, anyhow. Excellent. Keep us in the loop. Yeah, for sure. Okay, thanks. Thanks a million for taking my call. You have a super day, and thanks for all the info you give us. I don't know what we do without you. I appreciate that, Rosalind. Take care of yourself. Thanks a million. You're welcome. Later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Margaret, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Hi. Um, I just wanted to bring your uh, listeners' attention this morning that uh, tomorrow marks um, 35 years since the Morgenthaler decision. R.V. Morgenthaler, 1988. Yeah. So, yeah, January the 28th. And uh, so at that time, of course, they struck down the existing abortion law as being uh, uh, not uh, supplied equally across the country at the time. And people didn't have equal access to it, so they struck it down. But at the time, they also said that they felt that it was the responsibility of Parliament to bring in fetal rights. So it's been 35 years and we've been left with a vacuum, basically. Well, yeah, so what it specifically said at the Supreme Court, if I remember this correctly, if I'm wrong, someone set me straight, is they said that the abortion provision in the criminal code of the day violated Section 7, I believe, of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that could be saved by Section Number 1, and it was all about whether or not you could get an abortion solely at accredited hospitals. But then you had Morgan Toller and two other, one of them was named Robert Scott, I can't remember the third name, they set up a clinic in Toronto. And it wasn't, uh, didn't have the accreditation that the others had. So this ended up in the Court of Appeal of Ontario, then went all the way to the Supreme Court. And you're right, that ruling came down in 88, late January. So, um, yeah, so we, Canada is just one country, and I think North Korea and China are the other ones that have no legislation on the books at all protecting um, the fetus, basically. And... Uh, you know, we always say a society is measured by how it treats its most vulnerable, and you can't have any more vulnerable than the little innocent baby in the womb, you know. Yeah, there's no criminal laws regarding abortion in Canada, and that decision wasn't unanimous either. It was 4-3 or 5-2. And so, yeah, that's where we are today. There's been no change since 1988. There's been some attempts, like, uh, I know, I think one was Molly's Law. It was this gentleman who's... Um, wife was pregnant and she was the victim of a crime and her and the baby died and he was to the point that while well, at the time it was legislation or a bill put forward to make it a crime for the victim the unborn victim of a crime to be counted as as a victim under the law and uh, and he did he went so far as to mail because they had the baby's room ready had her name picked out and uh, he mailed all the MPs across Canada little items of her clothing. And this wasn't like, this was a wanted child. So that was one piece of legislation that we had hoped would have gone through, 
you know, that was one. And sex selection is another one that, you know, uh, abortion just because most of the time because the child was a girl and, you know, the people favored a boy. So that was a couple of the bills that that were tried to be put through over the years. And, uh, you know, that's, so that's just to make your listeners aware that we've had a vacuum now for all these years, you know. No protection at all at any stage. Nothing has changed. That's absolutely true. Margaret, would you like to say anything else this morning? No, just thank you for, for your time. And just wanted to remind your listeners of the ominous state that it is. Take care of yourself. Have a nice okay, weekend. Okay, you too, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, final break of the morning and the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Glenn, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, sir. Good morning. I'm, uh, I guess I'll introduce myself. I'm uh, Glenn Shepherd from Postville. I'm the Angiukak slash, for those who don't know what Angiukak means, I'm the mayor of the community of Postville. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, sir, and uh, thank you for the uh, opportunity. Uh, I'd like to speak uh, uh, on, a, on a topic um, uh, related to gas and stove oil prices uh, in my community here. As I mentioned, I'm the mayor, and I can only speak for the community of Postville. The negative impact the price of gas and stove oil has on our people, has on my people in my community, as uh, you know, at an all-time high. When I when I say at an all-time high, I mean and the, the most negative impact I've ever seen in my community. I've lived here all my life. I'm by no means 70 or 80 years old, but I've seen in in the past people that have jobs. Uh, in, in give, uh, I'll give an example. In the summertime, June on to September, when the daylight hours are long, uh, there's no better medication for, for positive mental health on a person's in a person's life than to get aboard your speedboat or to jump on your snowmobile and go for a drive out on the land. You don't have to shoot the gun. You don't have to catch a fish just to get out on the land. I'm seeing a huge reduction in this. Uh, I personally have a cabin located 14 kilometers northeast of Postville, out towards the, the coastline. And I'm right in the vicinity of traffic of boats and snowmobiles. Uh, this past summer, for example, I don't know how many times I've said to my missus, what a difference. A beautiful, calm day, sun pouring out of the sky, Temperatures probably hovering 20, 25 degrees in July and August. Hardly ever see a boat. Why? What's causing this? They can't afford to go to that gas station and purchase enough gas to go down the bay, up the bay, down the bay for a ride. Right now, they have to decide between healthy foods and whether or not I'm going to go to the gas station. For those that's listening, we're not living in the 1960s and 70s when a gas tank on a snowmobile was probably 12, 14, 15 liters. I got a snowmobile today. I go to the gas station. If she's on empty, my price tag to fill my gas tank on my snowmobile is going to come pretty close, if not over, the $100 mark. We have two snowmobiles by our door with the same tank capacity. $200. Sir, how can somebody on fixed income, EI, not everybody's on top EI, with families, how can somebody afford to live? The negative impact I'm seeing on the community here in my, in my community is 
like I said, at an all-time high. I would like to add that as, a, as an Inuit community government responsible for our community of Postville, we administer a program uh, for harvesting, collecting wood in the winter, and for those that burn oil, we purchase a certain amount of oil for seniors, disability people, people with disabilities, and those that's less fortunate who cannot have no means of either getting wood or purchasing stove oil. We're, we're starting to see a reflection of the high price of gas when it comes to individuals showing interest in going out and cutting firewood, bringing it back to the Inuit community government for payment and also for direction where to take it in the community. We're seeing a huge reduction in the interest. And the reason for that, I talk to individuals in the community. You know, I, I say you, you're not interested in, in, the, in our wood program our, our, for purchasing wood from you. No. You say, Glenn, what's, why? You know, when I'm going to go to the gas station and pay basically $50 for a 23-liter jerry can of gas, and I go up, uh, I got it for, for Postwell, we do have it handy for fire. Don't get me wrong. Handy meaning, close range meaning 20, 25 kilometers one way. You're still, your snowmobile is still going to burn gas, whether it's one kilometer. And with a load, you're going to burn more. So the, the negative impact that's having on our community here is, uh, you know, to a point of, I, I just don't know, as uh, as the mayor and the Ungyukak for the community, uh, I've brainstormed myself. Uh, we've discussed uh, different options from uh, uh, around the table as an Inuit community government. And, you know, what else do we do? Almost everywhere you turn your head, the dollar has, has worth less because of the price of goods. No question. I, Postville's not far enough north to be on that drum-delivered stove oil that's hit about $500, or are you, sir? Uh, yes, we are. We're in Zone 14. Okay. And, uh, uh, not everybody in town here uh, get get this oil delivered when when the tanker is in there. There is uh, some uh, residential homes, but it's more in my community. Uh, we're the smallest populated uh, in uh, in our region, from uh, in the Grant Mountains district. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the same problems as any other community. But yes, we are in Zone 14, and uh, like I said, there's there's a few that get it topped up here. Uh, like as for myself. We burn a bit of stove oil. When I say a bit, it's a home heating fuel, by the way. I said stove oil, but same difference. Uh, as basically when we're not in town and uh, we can't burn wood. So uh, as for myself, I'll probably purchase two drums for the whole year unless uh, I encounter a medical problem and I can't cut firewood. But, you know, for somebody with an 800-liter tank, I see lots of those around the community yet those uh, the bigger tanks 800 liters you're going to bury two thousand dollars yeah to fill that tank up so yeah it's a great concern yeah for folks relying in full-on stove oil they tell me a 500 dollar drum lasts maybe two weeks if you don't have other contributing sources of heat like a wood-burning stove or what have you and then further north for folks looking for firewood the lack of sea ice means they can't even go do that so it's a double-edged sword 
Yes, uh, right now we can't, uh, in, in, even in Postwell here, we can't use right yet our normal winter route that we call safely. Uh, there's uh, huge holes in the bay only caught uh, a few days ago. Uh, I did hear a previous caller, sir, uh, talk about uh, or question the, uh, the rebate uh, could be, uh, you know, uh, uh, could arrive to some households by the end of February. And I was thinking as I heard this person talking, I said, you know, I'm looking at December, January, end of February. We have our three coldest months gone under, gone by, by the time probably some people will get this rebate. You know, it might be only enough for uh, 205 liters of oil, but at this time of the year, it would be a great help because if you look at forecast, I looked at it this morning before I came to work, Sunday night coming, we're going down into a deep freeze. You know, we're, we're looking at minus 30s just without the wind chill and the daytime highs, minus 27, 28. So that's, we're heading into a really, really cold spell. And in what we got, what's gone past uh, behind us, uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, I lived here all my life. I didn't call it very cold. We had it cold enough to freeze our bay ice here, which was probably minus 20. But uh, we're going to go down to some real, uh, I guess, um, Labrador temperatures starting Sunday night for, for our neck of the woods. And this is when the oil is going to be pumped out, and this is when the wood is going to be needed. It's a dire set of circumstances in many regions, and I think it gets further complicated uh, when we talk about Labrador, uh, Postville, and all the way up to Nainer Natwashish or Hopedale or what have you. Uh, I'm glad you made time for the show this morning, uh, Mayor Shepherd, if, if that's appropriate. Actually, can you give me the uh, indigenous word that you use to represent Mayor? Yes, it's it's Angiokak, leader of the community. I appreciate the time this morning, sir. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. That's Glenn Shepard up in Postville, Labrador. Will I get Terry for a second to... Uh, okay. Terry wants to talk about Sunwing, and of course, there's no good conversations when we talk about Sunwing and the experiences that Sunwing customers had. Just think back to it. How many people were left high and dry to their own accord, to their own devices, with their own monies down in Mexico during the holidays? And the whole issue regarding travel has been a real fiasco. They say there's some solutions coming. Maybe, just maybe, some more legislation to actually tighten it up. And hopefully the Canadian Transportation Agency can do a little bit more of what is expected of them. They've been dealing with the 30,000 case backlog to try to get compensation for passengers. But not once since the airline passenger bill of rights came in. And airlines have not done what they're supposed to do regarding that bill. They have never fined the airlines. You know, if the airlines aren't going to be taking the task financially, why are they even going to do anything but drag their feet and allow the backlogs to be dealt with at CTA? All right, good show today. Oh, very quickly before we go, for those of you on the west coast of the island looking for a bit of hockey action tonight, tonight at 8 o'clock, the, uh, the Deer Lake Red Wings are in Quarterbrook to play the Royals. Big crowd going to be anticipated there. And then Deer Lake goes to Port of Basque tomorrow evening. All right, we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.